0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done, too. And the available Pro Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available pro power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, Put a ton of miles on on the freeway. Had five adults in the cabin for long trips. And it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks. Nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. From August 7th to September 10th, 1888, a crazed killer who came to be known as Jack the Ripper terrorized the Whitechapel district of London's impoverished East End. This extremely violent sadist brutally killed at least five prostitutes, mutilating their bodies in a highly unusual manner, indicating that the killer had at least a working knowledge of human anatomy. Whoever this Jack the Ripper was, well, possibly or probably never know. He was never captured. If he was even a, a he. Statistically and practically, based on the way he killed his victims, based on the suspects, highly likely a he. And he remains 130 years after his crimes, one of England's and one of the world's most infamous criminals. And today we suck into the details of his crimes, who he could have been, who his victims were and how absolutely fucking terrible life was for the economically enslaved inhabitants of the East End of London at the close of the 19th century in today's Across the Pond, bloody, brutal, and British edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I hope you want your sweet ear vaginas to be penetrated right now by the master sucker. The suck master, the fourth leg of Bojangles, because that's what's happening. I'm Dan Cummins, and you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod. Be gone, Lucifina. Not hailing you today. You know I'm always torn on you, Lucifina. So conflicted. How naughty are you? Not able to record this one in the Suck Dungeon due to touring. Recording this in a Sacramento, California residence inn, so it sounds a bit different. And I forgot to bring uh, a piece, one piece of my equipment. Not the most important part, but one piece that was supposed to help with some volume boosting. Uh, but you know what, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell, he has assured me he has some new magic tools in his uh, wizard fucking suite of, of audio mastery, and uh, he's gonna make it sound. He's gonna make it sound majestic. Uh, it's early in the morning. People staying in the room above me, uh, hopefully, they've either left for the day or checked out, uh, or they're about to have a terrible start to their day. Possibly, if they can hear me. Hopefully, they can't hear me clearly. If they do, I'm guessing they're gonna be uh, double checking the lock on their door with all the murder I'll be talking about, Uh, I want to start off by sharing some cool Tom and Dan news. Those lovable sons of bitches, those podcast godfathers, those podfathers from Florida, those kick-ass Orlando-based audio magicians who encouraged me to launch TimeSuck, make an app, start the whole space littered subscription-level thing, the guys who put me in touch with my merch manager, Eric Radiker, with the Danger Brain kick-ass design team, those podcast visionaries from a mediocre time with Tom and Dan, they have a cool-ass documentary out now chronicling their transition from traditional morning radio hosts to podcast luminaries, and you should watch it. You know, if you're starting a podcast, uh, or if you already have a podcast, you're a fool if you don't watch it. It's really inspiring. Uh, for screenings or to buy the DVD or get the digital download, uh, which I've done, uh, go to TomAndDanMovie.com. Just TomAndDanMovie.com link in today's episode description. Uh, a couple quick tour dates, and we're on our way. Getting right to it today. May 31st through June 3rd. Tempe improv with special guest Gareth Reynolds from the dollop podcast. Really excited to meet him. Uh, the dollop is a juggernaut of a podcast, and uh, I have no idea why he's going to be slumming it with me. Guess we're going to be working on some new fantastical material, uh, but, I'm, but I'm honored and excited for those shows. June 8th and 9th, be at the Draft House, Washington, D.C. Tickets on sale. June 15th and 16th in Des Moines, Iowa. Two nights only. Come on. Come on. Get out of the fucking corn stocks, and you get into the comedy club. Tickets on sale. Uh, June, uh, July 15th, doing my next uh, live Time Suck Podcast with the Tom and Dan guys in Orlando at the Orlando Improv. And I'm uh, doing several stand-up shows as well. Word is, word is, I might be pretty funny that week, possibly. That's what uh, I've been hearing on the streets. You should check it out. More tour dates at dancummins.tv. I'll be at La Jolla, Dayton, Tampa, Palm Beach, Chicago, Sunnyvale, your mom's bedroom, Portland, Tacoma, Columbus, Grand Rapids, your dad's garden shed, and more. Coming up in 2018. Uh, thank you for all the fan art that shows up on the Time Suck uh, Instagram page. I know we get stuff uh, mailed to the Suck Dungeon as well, but also get stuff uh, digitally sent in. So many talented Time Suckers, man. So many. Uh, really cool seeing the amazing pics. Honored that you spend your time uh, doing something for the show or just, uh, you know, thinking about the show. Just, just saw Pootie uh, and Juju Bojangles mashup. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Wonderful. It's on Awesome Spaces Lizard Doodle and a lot more. It's on a Space Lizard Tattoo, another tattoo somebody got. Looks fucking amazing. Oh, I got to get you some more ink. It's incredible. So much fun. A lot of, a lot of it up at uh, Podcast on Instagram. Now let's get to it. The murders continue this week. Hail Luciferine, I guess. Uh, with today's bonus suck 21, Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. As I say that, I wonder how much of his notoriety uh, comes from that homicidal moniker. Like, uh, what if, like what if he was known as like Evan the Naughty Pants? Jerry, the slapper. Leonard, the creep. Not going to get as much press. Not going to get as much press as Jack the Ripper. It's something about the Ripper. I think I think that's way worse than like Jack the Stabber. Jack the Cutter. I think maybe even worse than Jack the Beheader. Ripping the Ripper. It sounds so bestial, so savage. What the fuck is being ripped? Skin, I would imagine, but where? What else is being ripped? Is he ripping organs? Is he, is he ripping people's faces off? Is he ripping dudes' clean wings out of their Mama soaped and scrubbed roots. So many questions, I'm not sure I want answers to. Well, uh, we don't know for sure who Jack was. We're going to do some speculations. Had some fun guesses towards the end of the show. um We don't even know uh, if his name is actually Jack. Could have been Ebenezer. Could have been Jonathan. Could have been Donnie. Could have been Donathan. Or Ronathan. Could have been Donald. Ronald McDonald. We'll look at suspects again at the end of the episode. But uh, before we look at the crimes themselves, who may have committed them? Let's look into life in general in London in 1888, and then specifically life in the Whitechapel District of London's East End and East End uh, life in 1888, uh, and really just the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, The Industrial Revolution, which had begun in England in the 18th century with the very first workable steam engine, seed drills, construction of canals for easier product distribution and industrial supply, transport, power looms, cotton gins, etc., was really ramping up in the 19th century. In 1813, industrial employment took agricultural employment, uh, overtook, excuse me, agricultural employment in England for the very first time. Also, the population of cities, urban centers were exploding. The population of Manchester passed 100,000 for the first time in 1812. People leaving the farms, heading to the cities. When are you going to come down? When are you going to land? I should have stayed on the farm. I should have listened to my old man. Elton John a lot better. Goodbye, goodbye, yellow brick road, man. Talking about leaving the farm, heading to the city. 1825, the first regular railway services started between Stockton and Darlington in Northeast England. 1826, the journeyman steam engine fitters, the first substantial industrial trade union established in Manchester. 1833, the first effective factory act passed in Britain, regulating child labor in cotton mills, at least in theory. I think uh, there's a lot of child labor going on throughout the rest of the century, but, At least there was a law in the book somewhere. 1842, the Coal Mines Act prevented women and children from working in harsh conditions in mines. Uh, we, We will find out soon that life continued to be very harsh for them, but at least there was something going on. Between 1852 and 1880, British industrial production doubles overall. And because of all the various 19th century industrial and technological advances, by the 1880s, most people in England were experiencing a nice uptick in the quality of their lives. They were benefiting from cheaper imported food, other goods. New terraces of houses for the more prosperous working classes were increasingly connected to clean water, drains, even gas. New houses were needed, very needed. Uh, During the 19th century, London grew immensely. Had a lot more uh, people to to give houses to. It became the largest capital city of the largest empire that the world had ever known. Its population exploded from 1 million in 1800 to 6.9 million. By 1900, that's a big leap. And with massive growth came new massive problems for the city's poor and working class. London became a city that saw a concentration of poverty unlike anything the world had ever experienced before. The east end of London, the core of present-day East London, the working class and historically impoverished area east of the uh, old Roman and medieval walls of the city of London, north of the River Thames, had roughly 900,000 people. While the Whitechapel neighborhood, the neighborhood of uh, most of the uh, crimes of the River, and, and especially impoverished neighborhood within this uh, impoverished part of town, specifically had about 80,000 inhabitants. And in these neighborhoods, the extremely poor numbered about 100,000, a little over 11% of the overall population. And that's, that's a lot of people to be barely staying alive, uh, living in extreme poverty. Three-quarters of them were women and children. The common jobs they had included seasonal work, sweatshop tailoring, cleaning, manual labor, street sales, other low-level work. Prostitution was extremely popular, as we're going to explore soon, and the age of consent for sex was only 13, which is makes for a horrible combination. Young girls, very young girls, you know if, if the legal age was 13, you know there was kids, you know there was kids much younger than that uh, being, you know, forced in some way by circumstance or by uh, somebody's abs- uh, actual direction to be prostitutes, be preyed upon by whoever had a few pennies. Uh, And again, more on that soon. In the 19th century, Whitechapel was also the center of London's Jewish community. It was a popular neighborhood for recent immigrants, especially Irish immigrants, who had begun heading to London en masse during the Great Potato Famine of the 1840s. London itself was a city of startling contrasts in the 19th century. New building affluent development going hand in hand with horrifically overcrowded slums where people were living in the the worst conditions imaginable uh the city was growing far too fast to take care of its citizens who, who needed the most help who needed a helping hand the nobility and old money in town they were, they were making fortunes they were making vast fortunes through the immense trade and, and business opportunities that the new gigantic worldwide British Empire was providing and the poor uh they suffered you know they got none of those new benefits uh, they would have been better off you know just being medieval serfs than uh than what they were you know doing now which is basically be an industrial cannon fodder the upper classes the factory owners doctors lawyers bankers royal nobility you know aristocratic class of victorian 19th century england they had a they had a jolly old time yeah they took the new trains to seaside resort towns such as blackpool and brighton they read the fantastic new novels of dickens hg wells and more they attended the plays of the thriving west end Enjoyed elegant and bustling music halls, their aches and pains being cured by the recent arrival of codeine and morphine. Recent medical advances such as doctors actually washing their goddamn hands, actually cleaning their instruments, greatly increased the chances for survival. People are living a little bit longer if they had the means and the money. London's Victorian East End uh, might as well have been just another country apart from the rest of London. It's, It's anything but what most of us imagine when we think of Victorian England. It was morally, monetarily, Culturally adrift from the rest of the sprawling metropolis, prostitution was a way of life. Extreme poverty was the norm, and violence rampant. Portions of the city were also absolutely filthy. Uh, Common scenes included animals being herded through the streets to slaughter their blood and piss spilling into the cobblestones when they met the butcher. The rank smell of raw sewage constantly pervading the areas that escaped the cellars in which it was deposited. Yeah, Mixed with the coppery smell of animal blood. London in general, pretty dirty. And the poorer the neighborhood, the dirtier it was. Urine soaked in the streets. There was actually an experiment done in Piccadilly with wood paving in the mid-century, and it was abandoned after a few weeks because of the sheer smell of ammonia, the overpowering smell of ammonia coming up from the pavement. It was just impossible to bear. Uh, There were tens of thousands of working horses in London, leaving uh, the inevitable consequences of animal life on the streets. By 1890, there were approximately 300,000 horses in London, depositing roughly 1,000 tons of shit a day on the streets. That's a lot of horse shit. That's more horse shit uh, than the sum total of all the horse shit stories I've shoveled on you uh, over the life of, of Time Suck podcast. Boys aged 12 to 14 uh, were hired in the nicer parts of town to dodge between all the horse traffic, dodge between the carriages, try to scoop up the excrement as soon as it hits the streets. It was a real problem. I got to make sure my son Kyler hears about that. Okay? All right. He, he dreads mowing the lawn. A couple of times in the summer, a couple of times, right? And yet, and yet there were kids his age, he's 12, you know, spending probably probably 40 plus hours a week, risking being trampled. Probably some of them were trampled, probably a lot of them, uh, picking up the freshest of fresh horse shit and, and, and you know what? And happy to have the work probably did it with smiles on their faces, happy to have a job and, and they didn't even get to showers at the end of the day. You know, he, he showers sometimes twice a day. I'm guessing those kids went days, if not weeks without even a bath. Even though at various points in between washings, they were probably literally covered in shit. Why can't I get Kyler Monroe to follow our dogs around, you know, follow our dogs around the yard and clean their shit up? If they cared about helping the family, they could pick it up before it even hits the yard. They could put a little, you know, 19th century British kid work work ethic into their into their fucking acts. Those 19th century kids were dodging carriages to clean horse shit. My kids can't even follow the dogs around and put their hands under Penny and Ginger's cute little fluff butts. You know, why can't you put your hands under their little fluff butts when they hit that here comes the thunder, tail up, ass down, poop squat position. You know why? Because my kids are spoiled. It's like they think they're too good to catch a few turds in midair. What's what's the big deal? You know, what's the big deal? Catch a few turds. It's no problem. Chica will touch many worse things than turds uh, with hands, then many worse things than cute uh, doodle droppings. You know, we got fucking soap. You know, they can wash up there before they eat after they do a little bit of poop patrolling. Lazy lazy little shit avoiders. That's what I got for kids. Lazy little shit avoiders. Uh, I, partially, I partially say this because they, they listen to some of the episodes. So it cracks me up to think how outraged Kyra will be when he hears this. Speaking of shit, if I let him listen to this one. Some, some parts of this are pretty rough. Speaking of shit, let's get back to the east end of London around the time of 1888. It was a shithole. Child labor common. The 1880s, uh, you know, they're only a few decades after, uh, or that's only a few decades after Pip's sad tale. And, you know, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, if you're familiar with. But that's a sob story. In 1883, the London School Board reported that uh, out of the three schools with children in the area, uh, this is in the East End here, uh, from, from 1,129 families, 871 families had only uh, one-room homes. And that's in this little neighborhood where the, most of the day's story takes place. Not all of the East End. Due to the city's attempts to improve living conditions in the late 19th century, a lot of buildings in the East End were demolished. Which would be great in the long run because better buildings, you know, would be uh, finally built. But terrible in the short run, during the time period we're talking about, when 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 this uh, uh, packed poor part of town is, is even, you know, more packed, and uh, and it has a, a a housing shortage. The Bell Lane area of the East End, this little uh, street where the Ripper murders occurred, and, and Dorset Street, that little area housed over 800 people per acre. Uh, and this this was this was not true for the surrounding Whitechapel area which was still a slum it averaged 176 people per acre. Uh London at large averaged only 50 people an acre. Here here's some comparison though. New York City has 27,000 uh 16 people per square mile which translates to 42 to 43 people per square acre. 1 mile equaling 640 acres. 1 square mile uh, old London didn't have skyscrapers either to comfortably house those people in some kind of vertical fashion. Like no, they were all crammed into a few stories of hell. So again, New York City, forty-two to forty-three people per acre. Uh, the Whitechapel area uh, at, at large, uh, one hundred and seventy-six people. So that's uh, you know it's over four times as many. And then this, and then the little tiny area within the, like the neighborhood, the little Bell Lane area. Uh, over 800 people per acre, just fucking crammed in there in these, in these like weird, like hostel type things. We'll be talking about here in a bit. Um, yeah, in the summer or, or the warmer months, because of a combination of poverty and not enough housing, many of the city's poor just slept outside in parks, alleys, open areas. You know, it was a real skid row type situation. Those who slept indoors tended to sleep in some seriously cramped conditions. Man. Uh, in Whitechapel, there were 233 uh, places called common lodging houses, and they housed a total of eight hundred eighty five hundred people. That's 37 people per house, but some were way more crowded than others. Here's a description of what these houses were like. Now, this is taken from a London Papers article of, uh, published in 1883, saying, uh, There are the kips, or the common lodging house. The prominent feature of old kips is the kitchen. This is at once dining room, drawing room, smoking and card compartment, as well as kitchen. At one end is a swing door, which leads to the long sawdust floored room. Surrounded with benches or perhaps divided into compartments like a restaurant. A huge fire, be the weather what it may be outside, serves to cook the viands of the inhabitants and to supply the heat, which an insufficiency of clothing renders grateful in the cold weather. A number of tin vessels supplied by the house serve for teapots or missiles, as the case may be, both uses being frequent. Now, the article goes on to describe why it calls teapots missiles. (laughs) Basically, a bunch of various immigrants from various, you know, countries, uh, mostly in Europe, are crammed into this same communal living room, kitchen space area, sharing the same fire to cook their food, and it was fucking chaos, miserable chaos. Fights breaking out constantly. So uh, so that's downstairs, communal living and eating space, and then upstairs are the beds. Uh, the article says, upstairs there are dormitories with rows of camp beds bought from the barrack sales. Double beds have little wooden partitions between them, between them uh, with doors and latches upon the same. The dormitories, as a rule, have no washing conveniences, still less any chests or cupboards. Now, they supply a few photos. It looks fucking terrible. It just looks so sad. You had these little rooms. You can even call them rooms. Uh, more, more like cubicles with flimsy doors separated by flimsy walls. Sometimes they didn't even reach the ceiling. A lot of times they didn't. Just like little partitions. And uh, so I'm sure you could, you could hear your neighbor blow out a fucking candle in the little you know spot next door. You had a shitty cot-like bed. No drawer, no dresser, no closets. Uh, the kind of place that would make staying at today's just dump flea bag budget motel feel like you had died and gone to heaven. And you would pay by the day to stay at these places. Uh, security was pretty lax. So if things got out of hand with the neighbor, you're, you're on your own during your stay. Uh, they were checked weekly. These lodging houses by a police sergeant, but they didn't give a shit, uh, about these places. Um, you know, even if they found some kind of safety violation, it rarely led to any kind of actual penalty. Almost never led to any actual improvement. Uh, Jack London, the American author from San Francisco, mo- most famous for the call of the wild, that guy, he was curious enough about life in East London. He'd heard from across the pond about how bleak and terrible it was. He traveled to London and lived there for a few months in 1902 and he'd published the book, the people of the abyss, 1903. That's, that's a, tells a lot, you know, just by the title there, the people of the abyss, uh, he published that in 1903 about how life was in the East end and, and note when I, when I give his descriptions, that he's talking about life in the East End in 1902, which was dramatically better than the way life was in 1888, the, the time period of the Jack the Ripper murders. And here's how shitty he said it was in 1902. He talked about getting a job at a workhouse, uh, a place where you worked for shitty food and nightmares, lodging and no money. And, uh, you know, all, a.k.a. super happy fun camp, a.k.a. super happy fun camp uh, to grab a spot in a workhorse workhouse. I always want to say workhorse when I see that word, workhouse. You'd have to get in line early in the morning, stand with a bunch of other stinky, depressed, skinny dudes with fucking no hope in their eyes. And, you know, and just, you know, hope against all hope that you could get a job just so you could eat finally and grab a place indoors for once to sleep that night. And if the supervisor hired you, uh, you got a little food to kickstart your shift. London described uh, Jack London described being given some bread that had the density and consistency of a brick. That's what he said. Sounds lovely. He was also given a small cup of skilly. Eh, would you like some skilly uh, defined by Dictionary.com as a thin soup or gruel? Gruel being defined by Dictionary.com as a light, usually thin, cooked cereal made by boiling meal, especially oatmeal and water or milk. All of this defined by me as a bowl of sadness. Uh, Jack London's skilly uh, was Indian corn and hot water mixed together fuck, to form a thin soup that was probably roughly as satisfying to, uh, to slurp down as ass sweat or some poop juice. Uh, the work was some type of remedial manual labor. Jack did some stone crushing during his months there. Man, just gruel and stone crushing and a place to sleep and no money. Uh, but you did get a bath. You did get a bath. You got the worst bath ever. Check this out. I'm not making this up. This is not one of my nonsensical stories. Baths, <laughs> baths were taken in pairs by workers, as in you and another dirty, naked dude sit together in a small tub like children and scrub up in shared water. And it wasn't just shared between the two of you. Jack reported that 22 men would use the water, 11 pairs of dudes, before the water would be changed. Man, if you're the 11th pair, oh, God, how much does that suck? You know the water is fucking gray, like a dark gray, by the time you dip your bowls in that tub, right? You've probably got shit floating all over it, just hairs, a bunch of pube hairs and, like, lint and sh- Oh, my God, it probably smells so bad. Oh, and, that's, and that's your bath. That was, like, the highlight of your day. Oh, after taking the worst, most disgusting bath of your life, your clothes were taken by staff. They'd clean them for you overnight, you know, uh, you know, be ready for the next shift. You're given a nightshirt and some blankets, and then you had to go try and go to sleep, which, which Jack London found very difficult to, to sleep uh, because of a large number of other men in the same room on various cots. Think of like an uh, like old-school military barrack-type situation, also making it difficult to fall asleep where a large number of rats that were also trying to get some sleep in the same room when they weren't trying to fucking bite your ears off. Uh, A supervisor woke you up early the next day, and if you were sick or you didn't feel like working, well, all right, get the fuck out. We got a long line of other sad, desperate assholes waiting to take your shitty spot. 19th century London, the city where dreams were made, and by made, I mean trampled. And then uh, there was the rampant prostitution of the East End, as if this already isn't a sad enough picture. It was estimated by The Lancet, which was a local publication at the time, that there were roughly 80,000 prostitutes in London in 1857. Now, I couldn't find anything for the number specifically in 1888, you know, during the, the Ripper murder spree, but based on the population continued to explode, uh, based on conditions of the working class not improving at all, I'm, I'm guessing there's well over 100,000. And women would sell themselves for, for three pence or two pence or a loaf of stale bread, according to Jack London. Should be noted that six eggs could be purchased for five pennies or six pennies. And by those, the pence, you know, so basically, like, they could, they could be purchased for like three pennies or two pennies. Uh, it should be noted that six eggs at the time could be purchased for five pennies or six pennies, uh, a pint of, of milk or beer for two pennies, just a pint, and a pound of cheese for seven and a half pennies. So a pound of cheese costing over twice as much as an hour or so or, or a few minutes, whatever, of having your way with a woman's body, which to me says that uh, you know either women had very little value in the 19th century London or that's some dope-ass cheese. I mean, is there cheese out there better than sex? If so, tell me where to find it. I'm lactose intolerant, but I will punish my colon severely, savagely, if it means I get to nibble on some sweet-ass sex cheese. Sex cheese, that doesn't sound good. Oh, that, that, that puts some bad images in my brain. Because of the housing shortage, we already talked about paid sex acts, usually went down in alleys. As if Again, it just, it's like you think it's like, oh, this is really sad. Oh, no, no, it's going to get sadder. Uh, beds were hard to come by, uh, comparably expensive, you know. Uh, when a room or bed was available, it was often just behind those screens we were talking about, you know, or kind of out in the open. One of those lodging houses, many women slept with men uh, just to have a bed for the night. And now, again, right, right when you think it can't get sadder, let's talk about syphilis. Yay, syphilis. London was rife with syphilis in the 19th century. It was the primary STD. Well, that, the primary severe STD, that and gonorrhea. Uh, we're going to Gonorrhea actually might have been a little more popular. Um, but it, this, this was the nasty one. It was the, uh, you know, things like AIDS, you know, like uh, mid-80s, how terrifying that was. It's, it's like that. Uh, And and how do you get uh, syphilis? Well, you get it by giving the wrong answer when someone asks you what their favorite color is. Yes, it's that easy. I didn't even know. Uh, Brown? No. Whose favorite color? No, it's it's blue is my favorite. Good job, idiot. You got syphilis now. No, of course not. You get syphilis by direct contact with a syphilis sore during vaginal, anal, or oral sex. You can find sores on or around the penis, vagina, anus, in the rectum. Oh, that sounds especially painful, like in there, on the lips or in the mouth. Sounds fun. And you know some people had it all places. Well, I guess all places but one, not, not likely. It's, it's doubtful that someone had a penis and a vagina and had syphilis on both penis and vagina. If they did, whoa, oh, that sucks for them. Um, syphilis divided into stages, primary, secondary, latent, uh, tertiary, with different signs and symptoms associated with each stage. A person with primary syphilis some, uh, generally has a sore or sores at the site of the infection. All right, think like herpes. You get these sores, usually occur on or around the genitals, around the anus or in the rectum, again, or in or around the mouth. Sores are usually, but not always, firm, round, and painless. Now, if you're wondering if you have syphilis right now, sometimes when you talk about these things, they come up in your brain because it is still around. Uh, Well, if you've had unprotected sex in the past two years with uh, two or more new partners, there is a 15 to 20% chance that you have untreated syphilis because it doesn't always show up in an STD screening. And the symptoms at first can be, uh, you know, harmless. They can appear harmless, mild, recurrent itching around your genitals and/or anus, you know, and uh, soreness in your mouth. Uh, even if you can't see an actual sore, uh, occasional unpleasant odor, maybe a little more headaches than normal, maybe you're a little more tired than normal. Well, congratulations. There's a, there's a chance you have syphilis. And while it may never manifest itself into noticeable symptoms for roughly 30% of you, large pussy flesh eating sores could be right around the corner. And sadly, many modern syphilis strains, which are making a huge comeback right now, especially in the South and in California and parts of Texas, virtually untreatable. So good luck with that if you got it. And man, ugh, that was fun to make up. That was fun to make all that up. How many of you are worried right now that you have syphilis? A couple of you for at least a couple of you for sure. How many of you listen to that convinced yourselves that oh, I have felt a little itchy. I did smell weird the other day. I have, I did have, I feel like I have had a lot of extra headaches. Uh guess I'm not going to get as many emails of you time suckers fessing up to falling for that trick, at least not with your names attached. Uh, no, I have no idea what's going on with, with syphilis right now. Not, not pertinent to today's tale, but I do know about syphilis in the late, late 19th century. Symptoms of uh, secondary syphilis include skin rash, swollen lymph nodes, fever. The signs and symptoms of primary and secondary syphilis can be mild, and they might not be noticed. Uh, during the latent stage, there's no signs or symptoms, and then there's the worst. Then there's tertiary syphilis, and that's associated with severe medical problems. This is long-term untreated syphilis. Doctor can usually diagnose it with the help of multiple tests. It can affect the heart, brain, other organs of the body. It can damage your brain, nerves, eyes, heart, blood vessels, liver, bone, uh, liver, bones, joints, It can destroy your personality and your mind, leaving you a shell of your former self, like it did to Al Capone, if you remember that, from Suck 22. Remember by the time he got to Alcatraz, uh, untreated syphilis had just made him a shell of his former self. He would just, like, mumble to himself in the corner. He was just like a a baby let people push him around because his fucking mind was rotted with syphilis. And it can also eat away the flesh and cartilage of the nose. Oh, my God. If you want to do a terrible Google image search, it can leave you with a horrible facial disfiguration known as saddle nose. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, leprosy. Uh, While while there are no exact records indicating how many people had syphilis in London at the time, historians seem to agree it was probably around 10% of the entire population of London. So common sense would dictate uh, that the percentage was much higher than 10% for East End prostitutes having frequent unprotected sex. Gonorrhea also thought to be very, very common. So, so many filthy weans. So many dirty dicks. Late 19th century London sounds like Gary Ridgway's mom's worst nightmare. She would have wasted away to nothing. She wouldn't even had time to eat. Just you know, just working so hard to keep Gary's wean clean in a city of so much wean filth. Gary, he would, he would have loved it. Uh, well, not as bad as syphilis. Gonorrhea could leave you with an unusual, uh, increased bloody, yellowish or watery, green vaginal discharge, painful ur- urination, rectal pain, discharge, bleeding, even an inflamed eye. And and how were these diseases treated? Did you go down to the local STD clinic? Uh, no, uh, you went to a doctor who had no fucking idea what they were doing. Uh, they would—the <laughs> most common treatment was was mercury, uh, and while the application of like uh, liquid uh, mercury, or they came up with these processes to kind of like uh, give it like a, turn it into a, like a mist, uh, and and that did seem to help alleviate the lesions for whatever reason and some of the symptoms, but it didn't cure anything. Uh, no, it made things worse and and, and it could kill you and did kill a lot of people. Uh, you know, it could really fuck you up. Signs of, you know, side effects of mercury treatments would (laughs) include tooth loss, mouth, throat, and skin ulcerations, neurological damage, and death. So basically STDs were rampant amongst prostitutes in London's East End in 1888. And if you got one, you weren't getting rid of it. And if you got treated, things were going to get even worse than they already were. Terrible. Yeah, life was fucking terrible then. 55% of East End children died before they were able to turn five years old. Over half of them in the late 19th century. That's a lot of kids, so much tragedy. Poor couples rarely even got married, despite the taboo nature of not being married in higher society at that time in Victorian uh, England. Because, uh, you know, because of all the death and despair they were surrounded by. It just wasn't practical. Relationships rarely lasted long enough, you know, to to reach marriage. Because of the extreme poverty and high mortality rates, you know, uh, they couldn't afford it. Most families couldn't afford to live in actual homes. Few had anything that resembled even a private dwelling, you know. So it's kind of hard to be in a marriage when, you know, uh, you know you don't have a house. There's there's also rampant alcoholism to deal with the tragedy. You know, uh, there's constant violence around there. You know, one of the partners has to prostitute themselves for food. Children who didn't die young were often separated from parents, you know, and left to fend for themselves, go to work at an early age. Okay. Well, so now that we have a little context for life was like in the East End in 1888, let's talk about the murders that took place there. And now this, this is going to be graphic. Uh, warning: This segment could qualify as a super scary stuff segment. We're gonna we're gonna go through them one by one, the murders in today's time suck timeline, and then pop out and look into why the case was never solved. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Friday, August thirty first, eighteen eighty eight. I said 1988. That would change this timeline dramatically. Uh, the first victim is found, Mary and Polly Nichols. At around 3.40 a.m., Charles Cross discovered the first Ripper victim on his walk to work through Bucks Row, a small thoroughfare leading in uh, east-west direction in the eastern section of Whitechapel. Uh, aside from the murder itself, just the fact that he's walking to work at 3.40 a.m., sad to me. Uh, You know he's going to some shitty, soul-crushing, you know, uh, industrial job. The lighting was limited. At first he thought that he had found an unconscious rape victim, given that the poor woman's skirts were pushed up to her waist. Robert Paul, also on his way to work, noticed Cross surveying the unfortunate scene and joined him at his side. As the two debated on how best to help her, Paul straightened her clothing to protect her modesty and checked for a pulse. Thinking he found one, he hurried off for police. Neither man noticed the blood beneath her. Police Constable John Neal, walking his beat, didn't see or hear the men, but happened upon the woman in their absence. With a lantern in his hand, he saw what the first two men did not. She was clearly dead. Blood was present. Her throat slashed with a cut that ran deeply from nearly one ear to the other. Her eyes open. Her hands were cold, but her arms still warm, indicating she had died very recently. A doctor was sent for to see if they could somehow scoop up the blood, push it back into her neck, tape her head back on, and get her back to work. Uh, that's terrible. That's that's horrific. No, a doctor was sent for uh, a man named Dr. Llewellyn uh, was brought back to the scene. He examined her further. Two cuts ran across her neck, one of which ran so deeply it had cut through to the vertebrae. My God, that is more than a slash. That's someone trying to muscle her head clean off. The vast majority of blood uh, had been absorbed by the woman's clothing, but despite the massive loss, she was still warm to touch on her limbs. As I said, uh, Llewellyn determined she must have been dead no more than 30 minutes before taking her to the mortuary. The mortuary, by the way, was attached to a nearby workhouse, one of those places Jack London would later work in, as if it wasn't already terrible enough, these places, without having dead bodies being stored in them to make it even worse. Uh, Further study of the body at the mortuary revealed other significant trauma. The lower edge of her jaw on the right side was bruised from pressure, and a circular bruise was on the other side of her face, possibly from the pressure of her attacker's finger. Uh, Her abdomen had been slashed with multiple incisions that ran across her body, downwards on her right side. The fatty membrane that covers the stomach had been cut multiple times, and her vagina itself had been stabbed twice. Fuck. Man, I hope her vagina was stabbed after she was already dead, but I doubt it. I doubt it. What a piece of shit, man. No matter how many horrible cases I read about, I am consistently shocked by what human beings are capable of doing to each other. And that being said, if I caught someone stabbing some woman in her vagina. I hope that I'm capable of doing some horrific shit to him. You know, live by the vagina stab, uh, uh, die by the anal pole, I push up your ass and out through your fucking face, you misogynistic piece of shit. Man, some people really, really, really deserve to die a horrible death. Uh, The presumed weapon, based on the the angle of the wound, was determined to be a, uh, or wounds, determined to be a sharp six to eight inch knife with a stout back. Additionally, uh, based on evidence, it appeared that the attacker was left-handed. And, and who was the woman who attacked her that night? Uh, Marianne Polly Nichols was 42 years old, five foot two, brunette with gray hair, five missing teeth. Born on February 13, 1888, to a father who was a blacksmith. At 19, she had married William Nichols, a printer whom she had five children with and lived with for six years before separating. William would claim that the cause of their separation was her drinking, was alcoholism. She just stayed at the Lambeth Workhouse after that. William paid her five shillings once a week for two years. Rent for a little flat in the East End cost a little over five shillings a week. And then when he learned she'd become a prostitute in 1882, he discontinued his weekly payments, uh, granted permission to do so by the court. Polly stayed with her father at times, balanced between workhouses and so on. No word on the kids where they ended up. I'm hoping they ended up with dad. Probably, though. They probably had to fend for themselves. Uh, Never quit drinking. Never held a job long. Uh, was often asked to leave lodgings because of issues stemming from her drinking, thieving, and so on. Up until a little more than a week prior to her murder, she'd been staying at 18 Thrall Street for the better part of six to eight weeks. Uh, The night of her death, she had been turned away from another public house in Brickland because of lack of funds. She had acquired the money for a bed at least three different times the day she died, according to accounts, but each time had then drank all the money away. She was last seen wandering drunkenly through uh, Whitechapel uh, boasting loudly of being able to get her money again. Uh, the police were not able to establish any particular motive for her death, possibly a crime of uh, opportunity, possibly a uh, wrong place, wrong time. A man referred to by local prostitutes as Leather Apron would become the prime suspect in her murder. Apparently, this man was running some type of a extortion racket, racket uh, amongst the prostitutes of the area by demanding money from them, beating up those who refused to give them what meager cash they had just earned. Remember, they're getting like a few fucking pennies for each trick. Uh, As far as the prostitutes were concerned, this was the person whom the police should be looking for. Unfortunately, they could tell the police very little about this man other than he habitually wore a leather apron, hence their nickname for him. And uh, and he sometimes wore a deerstalker hat. Didn't give the police much to go on. So uh, who was this leather apron fellow? Uh, a neighborhood police officer, Sergeant William Thick, provided a promising lead. According to Thick, whenever the people of the area used the name Leather Apron, they were referring to a man named John or Jack Pizer. Armed with this fresh information, the police promptly set about trying to find this Jack Pizer, hoping to uh, either prove his guilt or eliminate him as a suspect. Unfortunately, within days of the police being alerted to this promising suspect, their investigation suffered an almighty setback when the newspapers found out about their main suspect. Uh, on the 5th of September, the Star newspaper ran the first of several articles that terrified local residents and caused a huge amount of frustration to the police who had hoped to keep their suspicions a closely guarded secret lest they alert the suspect to the fact that they were on to him. Leather apron, the headline screamed, the only name linked with the Whitechapel murder. Uh, went on to tell of a strange character who prowls, prowls about after midnight. Uh, talked about universal fear among women. Spoke of him having slippered feet, carrying a sharp leather knife. The star's campaign to alert the populace to the noiseless menace in their midst had two effects. firstly John P learned of the police suspicions and uh, you know and rather than you know fall, falling victim to a fucking lynch mob uh, he goes into hiding amongst his relatives and then makes them you know obviously harder to track down. second the paper's description stoked fires of local anti-Semitism and how how often has that theme come up in historical sucks it's like anytime we dig into European atrocities or historical events or crimes we, we seem to take a, at least a small detour into the Jews did it. Yeah, those poor bastards, man. Just fucking always just uh, on, on the uh, suspect list in Europe. Always on the shit list. Uh, the leather apron was synonymous with workers uh, amongst the Jewish immigrants that had been flooding the area through the 1880s, fleeing persecution in Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, the Star's uh, articles also emphasized the sub- sub- yeah, suspect's Hebrew appearance, and this in turn fed a growing belief amongst the Gentile population that no Englishman could be capable of such brutal and gruesome crimes. Thus, anti-Semitism, which had been gaining momentum in the area for several years, showed a dramatic increase, and the police became suddenly alarmed that the press speculation concerning the murderer's ethnic origin might easily erupt into a full-scale anti-Jewish riot. Thus, uh, by the 7th of September, 1888... Uh, the police were in the position of, of being desperate to find Jack Pizer, but also of, of playing down suggestions that they were looking for a member of the Jewish immigrant community, lest their activities lead to a pogrom or ethnic massacre in the East End of London. As the police do their best uh, to search for Jack, but not seem like they're racially targeting a Jewish man, another woman then dies a violent death. And before we get to that next murder, quick word from today's sponsor. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by uh, Brett Haberdasher's East London Stink Emporium. Uh, What did tons of horseshit, open syphilis sores, skunk pelts, men who've been uh, forced to take baths together, and sex cheese all have in common? They stink. And that stink reminds us of a simpler, much more horrific time. And at Brett Haberdasher's East London Stink Emporium, you'll be transported back to the late 19th century London so that when the doors are finally unlocked and you're allowed to leave, you'll appreciate your modern life that much more. That's what they really sell is appreciation. How much does being trapped for up to a month with 300 other people and 500 rats in an old boarding house designed to accommodate no more than 50 people and 30 rats cost a million pounds? Five million? No. Brett Haberdasher has jacked, ripped, slashed, and stabbed prices to get the cost under what you would normally spend for a pound of premium sex cheese. To find out more, please visit my neurologist and enter the code I wish I could get the last 45 seconds of my life back upon checkout. And now, back to what you actually had tuned in to hear. Hail Nimrod! Okay. So that was, that was fun for me, if no one else. On, on Saturday, September 8th, 1888, second victim, Annie Chapman, her body is discovered. Uh, just before 6 in the morning, Chapman's body is found outside the back of 29 Hanbury Street, less than half a mile from Polly Nichols' body. The building at this address is occupied by 17 people, and not one of them claimed to have heard a single thing. Chapman was last seen alive at 5.30 a.m. in the morning by a woman passing by. The witness claimed to have seen Chapman with a man apparently haggling over something. The man was over 40 years old, was wearing a deerstalker cap, and uh, was described as having a shabby, genteel, and foreign look to him. Was it Jack, leather apron, Pizer? Uh, No attempt had been made, again, to hide the body. She was just uh, inside a fenced outdoor passage that led to 29 Hanbury Street. By the time Inspector Joseph Chandler arrived, a crowd was already present and violently threatening passing Jews. Not good. Not good. Uh, And his hands were raised in such a way that it appeared as though she had been uh, fighting for her airway. Her hands and face were smeared with blood, adding to the feeling that she had been struggling. Her legs were drawn up with her feet on the ground, and her knees turned out. Her long coat and skirt were pushed up over her blood-stained stockings, and she had been disemboweled. A handkerchief was also tied around her neck, although her throat had been cut extensively, so extensively that she was nearly again decapitated. A man had covered her with a tarp awaiting the arrival of the police force. Dr. Baxter Phillips uh, examined the body and noted the following. The woman's face and tongue was swollen, and there was bruising on the face and chest. There were abrasions on the finger where the rings had been torn off. The incisions in the throat indicated that they had been made from the left side of the neck. There were two distinct cuts parallel to each other and about half an inch apart. From the way the muscles had been worried, it seemed as though the killer had tried to cut through the spine and take off the head. The abdomen had been entirely laid open and the intestines severed from their mesentric attachments, which had been lifted out and placed on the shoulder of the corpse, whilst from the pelvis and the uterus, upon it and its appendages, uh, with the upper portion of the vagina and the posterior two-thirds of the bladder entirely removed. Obviously, the work was that of an expert, or one at least, who had such knowledge of anatomical or pathological examinations as to be enabled to secure the pelvic organs with one sweep of the knife. Uh, Dr. Phillips ruled that the cause of death was unsurprisingly, uh, I guess no—I guess it would be surprisingly, uh, he ruled that it was, uh, it was allergies. Yeah, she was allergies. Uh, she was allergic to being attacked and when she was attacked, she nearly sweet, uh, sneezed her head off and she did sneeze part of her vagina off. That was a fucking terrible thing for me to even think, let alone say out loud, uh, heart failure due to lack of blood was his assessment regarding how she died. And he said that the weapon must've been a very sharp six to eight inch knife and that the attacker may have been some, uh, or may have had again some anatomical knowledge. And, you know, uh, there was that very sharp, you know, eight inch blade again. Uh, later, uh, Mr. Winnie Baxter, the coroner, reported that his belief was that the killer absolutely had ended up anatomical knowledge because there was no extra cuts on the body. Every wound was done with intent. Uh, he also noted that only two things were missing from the body, uh, rings and the woman's uterus. Ugh, okay. Uh, her time of death was reasoned to have been after 530. I don't know what he's talking about. That's just what the quote said, rings. I don't know if that means like like jewelry rings or if there's some body part he's referring to as rings. So sorry, I, I don't know what he meant. Uh, I, I do know what he meant by uterus. We all, I think, know that. Her time of death was reasoned to have been about, you know, f- after 5.30 a.m., meaning meaning the killer uh, had walked away from the crime in the light of day and at least, and, and likely with at least some blood on his person. Uh, that could have been concealed or disguised simply uh, by the number of local butchers in the area who had remnants of blood on their clothing. A witness added credence to that after claiming that he heard a woman uh, say no sharply and then he heard the sound of something or someone fall against the fence around 5.20 a.m. Another witness had actually passed through the area with a body was found at roughly 4.45 a.m. Nothing was there at that time. So, you know, a lot of violence happened in a, in a very short little span of a few minutes there. And who and who was this second video? Who was this Annie Chapman? Well, friend Amelia Farmer identified her body. She came from a military family. She was known as a clever, sociable, well-educated woman. Uh, she lived in common lodging houses in the uh, Spitfields and Whitechapel area for about four years before her death. She had, she had separated from her husband, who did provide her with 10 shillings a week. Uh, until he died about 18 months before she did, which obviously led to a stop in payments. Prior to their separation, they had three kids uh, together, lived outside the city until Chapman's drinking, and we go with that again, caused such a rift between the couple that they split, and she didn't seem to be a fun drunk. Uh, Just prior to her death, Annie Chapman had been in a brawl, gotten in a brawl with another woman over a piece of soap that she had borrowed to clean herself with, but then now returned to this other woman. And the altercation had left her uh, bruised, uh, bruises on her temple, bruises on her chest. Man, fighting over a bar of soap, that's when you know you're both very poor and you're very angry. What sad lives uh, some people have led, right? Like, if you're listening right now, uh, obviously, if you hear me talking, you're listening. No matter how shitty your life may be right now, be glad that you haven't gotten in a soap fight. Like, if you can afford the technology required to listen to a free podcast, highly doubt you're getting in soap fights. So that's positive. Um. All right, also found on the crime scene is a small piece of leather, which does not do any favors for old old leather apron, old Jack Pizer. Old leather apron is sought in connection to this crime uh, because of this little piece of leather and because of the suspic- uh, suspicions already surrounding him. No bloods on the scrap, but uh, but just that having the scrap there was enough to bring him in. Uh, also recently been noted that he had been uh, spotted wearing that deer stalker hat. You know, it's just been described by a witness of so both both uh, crimes. Somebody's wearing a deer stalker hat. stalker hat, by the way, is, that, is one of those Sherlock Holmes type hats. With the bill in the front and the bill in the back, uh, you can order one on Amazon because uh, I was curious and elsewhere if you, if you want to wear it for a costume party or if you just uh you know want to want to be a person so desperate to get attention from strangers that you decided to wear a deerstalker hat on days that are not Halloween. Uh, <laughs> Authorities, it's weird, it's a weird hat. Authorities searched uh, Leather Apron's house, found uh, five long sharp blades that he claimed was for his uh, trade as a boot finisher. When they questioned him about uh, further about the knives, he got angry and said, those are boot-finishing knives. Ask anyone. I keep my vagina-stabbing blades in an—oh, ah, fuck. No, he didn't do that. He defiantly claimed innocence. Uh, he was brought to the Lehman Street police station for further questioning. He had strong alibis for the nights of each murder. His stories checked out. A reasonable answer to the scrap of leather was found when another man admitted that he had been in the passageway previously and cut a piece of his leather boot off to alleviate discomfort. So it's a lot of leather in this story. Uh, another suspect was brought in after this uh, second murder, a man named William Pickett, who was uh, some unfortunate soul who just happened to uh, look a lot like Leather Apron. He looked a lot like uh, Pizer. Uh, he, he was drugged into the Commercial Street Police Station the very same day as Jack. His behavior was erratic. He had numerous wounds on his hands, which didn't look good for him. Uh, someone had previously noted bloodstains on his clothes while he's at the pub, so that that sounds guilty. Uh, but he was not found guilty. He was uh, he was found to be crazy. He was proclaimed insane and he was sent to an asylum in Bow, Bow, excuse me. After investigating him, uh, police strongly felt that he was not their man. And then the police investigation gets a lot more complicated thanks to the press reporting the second murder. Uh, you know, now, you know, public fear is getting, uh, getting stoked. People are getting worked up. People think they should start helping solve the case now. And the police starts receiving a lot of letters, reading, you know, roughly 1,000 letters a week. That's a lot. You know, a lot of them are full of confessions, just nonsensical confessions, uh, full of concerns, advice all other sorts of information. Advice included better street lighting. Let's get some better street lighting. Uh, a wired alarm system running at the base of the streets that would allow a fallen prostitute to pull, like, a cable to to alert others. That's That is, uh, seems a bit much. Uh, they're just going to have these, uh, you know, like, just all along the streets. In case somebody falls near a street, they can pull a cord that'll, like, sell a, send off a signal, I guess. I don't know. Um, One person also <laughs> wrote in saying that they should – uh, have uh, velvet-covered steel collars for prostitutes to wear. That's that's how you solve it. And steel collars for prostitutes. Someone actually wrote a letter into the police thinking, A, a steel collar would stop the murders, and, and B, that the police weren't able to think of something like that on their own. And and whoever sent this letter didn't just, didn't just have this as a passing thought that they later felt foolish about. You know, it wasn't just another woman with her throat cut. We must think of something to protect these poor women's throats. Hmm. I've got it. A steel collar. Yes, uh, but, but but one covered in velvet, so it still looks pretty. Yes, good luck cutting through steel, you bloody murderous bastard. It's elementary, dear Watson. No, no, wait, 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 wait. No, this is, a, this is a bloody foolish plan. Obviously, obviously he, could, he could still stab them in any number of other places, similar to what he's been doing. Uh, crumple the letter, you're starting to write, Watson, and, and throw it in the trash. I'm going to lie down and, and pretend I never said any of this rubbish out loud to anyone. No, uh, someone had this dumb idea. Wrote it down. Still thought it was good. Probably gave it a look over. Yeah, yeah, all right. Looks, looks, looks good. Good letter. Then fucking sent it off. Then then waited. You know, <laughs> to hear that. Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, no worries. The police they they've got a bunch of steel collars have b- been made. Uh, all the prostitutes now are wearing steel collars. So good good luck killing them. Good luck figuring that out. You can't you can't cut their throats anymore. Okay. Uh, fucking collar prevents that. One Australian citizen. Uh. <laughs> wrote in to inform the police that the murders were at the hands of the Germans who were, of course, skinning people. They were skinning people and then they were wearing those people's skins as as disguises. And how did they keep another person's skin upon their skin? Well, you know, they would would fucking glue it onto themselves and they used American glue specifically. And that's how they're able to commit crimes and not be caught. Holy shit. I wonder if this Australian wrote that from a small cell in the Bedlam Mental Asylum. Uh, again, just you know, crazy enough to think of something that, that outrageous, but it's interesting to me that like they were crazy enough to think of that, but sane enough to fucking write it down and then mail it into police. Just ah, oh, yes, those damn Germans wearing their skin masks again, using that American skin glue. It's also clear when you step back, take off your clothes, cover yourself in blood, punch yourself in your knackers, scream like a demon until you lose your voice and really think about it. With God, the Germans wearing those fucking skin masks, skin suits. All this nonsense uh, has gotten me thinking uh, about this week's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. 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 I found a Jack the Ripper documentary on uh, YouTube titled Jack the Ripper, The New Evidence, published in 2015 by Crazy, Weird, Cool Shows and Eileen Anderson's. Let's, uh, uh, and Eileen Anderson, excuse me, lets everyone know uh, she is a moron posting. I think Jack had a mommy issue. I think I would do some background on all the suspects to see who had a mommy issue and or a woman problem. Uh, It's 19th century East uh, in London, Eileen. All right. Okay. All right. Almost everyone had a mommy problem and a daddy problem and a woman problem and a man problem. Their lives were full of nothing but fucking problems. And how do you think the police uh, were going to figure that out? Just line up the suspects and just ask them. All right, you scoundrels. Which of you naughty boys has a problem with your mom? Who hates women? Step forward. Step forward if you're a women hater. I bet they could find over a thousand suspects in that one neighborhood who had been, like, abandoning his kids by their dads and moms, you know, so many, so many mommy issues or, 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 you know, men who were also shagging prostitutes for three pennies in a fucking alley. So, you know, they also had some women issues, you know, as well. Uh, flat Earther, uh, Julian Van uh, Taylingen uses the comment section to rally for a little Flat Earth support, posting, Earth is flat. If you agree, hit the blue thumbs up and comment below. Uh, well, one person gave the comment uh, a thumbs up and then replied. So I clicked to open up the replies and see who it was. Turns out it was Julian himself. I just thought that was so funny. Uh, yep. He replied to his own comment with, uh, you know, he replied to his own, you know, call to action with, I agree. Nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, but I felt like, but it was in the, in the Jack the Ripper comment thread and I felt like it was worth sharing. I so hope he didn't, that he didn't do that as a joke. I hope in my in my mind I just picture him like really asking for support, you know. Just come on, guys who who also thinks Earth is flat, hit the thumbs up if you think so, and then just waiting around and like no one to fucking does it. And he's like, "Well, I okay, I I do, I I agree," and then hoping that that kicks off more agreement, you know, as if it does you know, instead of what it really does, which just makes it look fucking that much more sad that it's his comment and his own reply. <laughs> so ridiculous. Who wants ice cream? I do. Thanks, me. Uh, user Southern Muscle also posts something that has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. Instead, uh, the mere sight of a, of a family of three Muslims walking past uh, one of the old murder sites in this video, a sweet-looking family, all holding hands, minding their own business. Uh, well, this triggers some racial hatred from uh, Southern Muscle, which is a ra- you know pretty racist-sounding uh, name, actually. And, and he posts, very sad that Muslims are taking over London. At 3832, Mark, you see those Muslims walking the street near one of the murder scenes. We Westerners are completely stupid for allowing these people to immigrate. Well, 105 replies under this comment, half from people arguing with or supporting Southern Muscle. Uh, Half of him, you know, uh, about him saying like, you know, racist, more racist shit. Like, you seem to ignore the fact that even moderate Muslims, the men, beat their wives for the slightest of reasons. Honor killings occur daily in the Muslim world by those you consider moderate. What the fuck are you talking about, you racist moron? Daily killings from moderate Muslims. All moderate Muslim men beat their wives. You know, I you know I've traveled a lot. I've seen a lot of Muslim women in my travels. Uh, I get to see one where I noticed a single, you know, uh, black eye uh, uh, blemish of any kind on, the, on their on their face, any swollen face. Uh, I, I'm sure they're out there. I mean, some are sadly statistically bound to be beaten because domestic violence is a real worldwide culture crossing issue you know uh and some fundamentalist uh, muslims have and do commit honor killings and some have and do beat their wives you know like again like everybody else sadly but many many don't so shut the fuck up stop making it look like those are like you know specifically muslim traits you fucking idiot stop pushing racist divisive propaganda in random youtube threads just fucking go back to your fucking weight room i guess southern muscle you know <laughs> just fucking go pump some iron and shut the fuck up uh, drop the, drop down the on your head. Maybe it'll knock some sense in yourself. Finally, user Denise Phoenix proves she is not someone I would enjoy even having a, a single conversation with. In one sentence, posting, Jack the Ripper truly hated women, dot, 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 by the savagery of the murders. Oh, look at you, Sherlock Holmes. Well, well, uh, well done, Captain Obvious. What other, what other knowledge gems do you have for us? I just love this Captain Obvious bullshit. People always put on the comment threads. I think the murderer either had owned or at least was familiar with how to use a knife. And I think that because you know of the stabbings and whatnot. I think the killer targeted women considering all of the people he murdered, if you think about it, were in fact women. So that is why I think he did that. Did the police ever look into suspects who were murderers? I just bring this up because... Whoever did this was highly likely to have been a murderer. (laughs) All right, enough of these idiots. Let's get back to Jack. Idiots of the Internet. Internet. September 28th, 1888. Back into the timeline. After the first two murders, uh, a letter arrives at the Central News Agency that uses the name Jack the Ripper for the first time. It was written September 25th, and here's what it says. September 25th, eighteen eighty eight. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have cost me. There's a lot of misspellings in this. The police have cost me. Well, I guess he meant caught me. But they won't fix me just yet. I've laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work, the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is git enough, I hope. Ha <laughs> ha! The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife... It's nice and sharp, and I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough. Wasn't good enough I'll op- post op- this before I got the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet, they say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. That's all his little ha ha's in there. Uh, no one knows for sure that that was uh, written by the real killer, but uh, many historians feel that it's possible, if not probable, that that letter, letter did come from Jack the Ripper. Uh, two days later, on Sunday, September 30th, 1888, the butcher strikes again. This time, a, a double murder occurs after nearly three weeks of quiet, and the two women are killed within a 15 minute walk of each other. Found in a narrow court off the uh, quiet burner street at a little past 1 a.m. is the body of Elizabeth Stride. Evidence now points in hindsight to the, to the likely fact that Stride was not a Ripper victim, although there is a theory that she could have been. Uh, and that the reason the, uh, the nature of the crime didn't exactly fit is because he was interrupted somehow, and, and then he just moved on to his next victim. Uh, Dr. Phillips is the doctor on call this time. He examines the body, discovers it similar to the previous Ripper victims, she's still warm when he examines her. Despite the immense loss of blood from the her neck, he quickly demands to see the hands and clothes of everyone in the vicinity to check for blood. He also demands a fast search of all neighboring homes, which outrages local citizens and the authorities find nothing. By 5 a.m., news has reached the area that another murder uh, victim's body has been discovered. Doctors Blackwell and Phillips report on her body at the coroner's request. Phillips notes that there are no other marks on her body except for her sliced throat and a few healing syphilis sores. God, goddamn syphil. Got the syph. Slash across her neck was just below the line of the silk scarf tied around her throat. Both doctors agree that a 9 to 10-inch knife was the murder weapon, a weapon that was later found at around one twenty a.m. in Whitechapel. They both found it to be a very odd weapon of choice due to its build. It was a slicing knife from a, from a uh, candelier shop. Uh, a key witness came to light in this specific murder named Israel Schwartz. He was a Hungarian immigrant who'd slashed the throats of over 50 women in Hungary over the past several years. Authorities didn't know about those murders, but he was uh, he was not apprehended in Hungary. They didn't have the right extradition kind of laws, and he was not seen wearing a deerstalker hat, so he was immediately ruled out as a suspect. Um, I joke. I I kid. Uh no, he was not a murderer. Uh that would be ridiculous for them to let him go that way. He, no, he was an eyewitness. He was he was terrified by an encounter he'd seen. At about 12:45 a.m., he had turned into, onto Burner Street and he'd saw 30-ish year old man arguing uh, uh arguing aggressively but quietly with stride. It appeared to be a domestic issue, but heated. Schwartz, not able to speak English, tried to keep an eye on it but wanted to do so without getting involved. The man pulled stride into the middle of the street. Um Stride quietly screamed no three times. The man then saw Schwartz yelled a Jewish slur at him, and it scared him, and and he took off. Man, ugh! Can you imagine how you'd feel if you saw some woman being violently assaulted? You know, or you know, or at least you know, in a heated, like aggressive, like you know, looks like violence is about to break out. Uh, you know, type of argument. You you start to intervene, or at least you're keeping an eye on things, and then and then the dude yells at you, and you just take off. And then you find out, you know, a short time later that she had been murdered moments after that. That shit would haunt you. My God, man. Nimrod would not be pleased with you. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Who was Elizabeth Stride? She was born on November 27th, 1843 in the parish of Torsland, north of Gothenburg, Sweden, where she lived with her family on a small farm with three siblings. She had a slight build, blue eyes, brown hair, oval face, straight nose. She'd been working as a prostitute in the area since March of 1865. Man, damn. She's working as a prostitute for twenty-three years. By the time the Ripper got her, holy shit! Over two decades of constant stranger fucking, the dirtbags she must have come across in that time period—that could not be good for her head. The things she must have seen. The month before she started working the streets, she delivered a stillborn daughter, and it may have been this fall from from innocence in Victorian uh, era England that led her to move into prostitution. Uh, she did try to get out of the prostitution life a few times. On so July tenth, eighteen sixty-six. She was entered in the London Register uh, as an unmarried woman who worked as a servant for a family in Hyde Park. 1869 is believed that she married a man named John Thomas Stride, a carpenter, although she did later make a false claim that he, along with two of their nine supposed children, died in the uh, sinking of the steamer Princess Alice, which turned out to be bullshit, so so who knows. Uh, for three years prior to her death, she was living with a man named Michael Kidney on Fashion Street. She was known to disappear for small amounts of time and drink too much. Uh kidney never chased her when she left, but always allowed her back when she returned. She had left him again on the Tuesday before the murder. And here's why some don't think she was a victim of Jack the Ripper. The actual murder included no additional mutilations, solely the result of the throat being cut, whereas the other victims were strangled first. Uh, additionally, the cut made did not match the others, according to Dr. Phillips' review. There's a little bit different, different kind of knife, because the knife, knife used was not as sharp as the knife used in the other Ripper crimes. Uh, Stride was not trying to pick up any customers that particular night, as the other women had done. And then Michael Kidney, Stride's companion, uh, was a likely suspect. He had been charged with assaulting her the year before, and they had had a pretty turbulent relationship. Uh, So there's that. So the second unfortunate soul, murdered that same night, Sunday, September 30th, 1888, was found a mile away in uh, Meter Square, making her the only victim to be killed within the actual uh, city limits of London. Now, this put the investigation squarely in the hands of the city police under leadership of Major Henry Smith. That specific location had been patrolled by local police, had been noted as being empty at 1.30 a.m., and then when constables returned by, uh, through the area at 1.45 a.m., they discovered the body of Catherine uh, Doze. So, you know, in that little 15-minute chunk, this all went down. Uh, when, when Major Smith arrived, he found several of his men around the body, which, uh, which he noted during the following, uh, noted the following during Dr. Frederick Brown and Dr. Sekira's examinations. She was lying on her back with her right leg bent, still warm to the touch. A cut across her right cheek had sliced off the tip of her nose, And part of her right ear, this piece of her ear was later found in her clothes at the mortuary. She had been torn open. Oh, my God. Uh, She had been torn open from her rectum to her breastbone and disemboweled. Damn. Just reading that made my butt hurt and made my stomach queasy. Oh, it makes my butt hurt right now. Wow, from her rectum to her breastbone. Man, that's some serious rage. God damn. Uh, Several of the cuts have been made through her clothing, limiting blood splatter. The intestines have been taken out, set above the right shoulder with some uh, substance smeared on them. A section of intestines had been removed about two feet in length, set between her body and her left arm. Her left kidney had been removed. Her lower eyelids have been sliced off. Fucking A. Sliced off with precision. A piece of red silk gauze joined multiple cuts at the woman's neck. Her throat had been cut, resulting in a gash of about six inches her nose may have been nicked off because she had or was thought to have had syphilis as you mentioned earlier syphilis was common at the time and often resulted i shouldn't say often could result did result sometimes in the disease eating away one's nose oh my god it was actually so so common i mean it was you know f- common enough that sterling silver uh, artificial noses were were available for purchase in town you could buy a, a fake nose to cover your fucking the, the left whatever leftover cartilage you had from syphilis that where your nose used to be and you could also buy cheaper options than the Sterling Silver noses. They had various art- artificial noses. I, man, that's so crazy to me to think about. I would think that I would think that would be bad for business to be a 19th century London prostitute, a city of many prostitutes, how are you still getting business if, if you got a silver nose? I mean, just, just for real. Like, or worse, a cheaper nose option. I mean, I'm just thinking like, like if a prostitute that does have a nose, like a full nose prostitute, if she's getting three pennies for a back alley shag. How much is a silver nose prostitute getting? You know, or you know, what if what if the prostitute can't afford the silver nose? Which you know, since the, they're getting paid so little, I, she probably can't. You know, what's uh, what about copper nose? You know, how how how's she how's she doing? You know, she starts off all shiny and coppery with her nose, and then it ends up all green and crusty as the as the copper oxidizes. You know, who who's getting it up for green nose? How much is old How much is old wooden nose getting? Old pine honker. The real question that pops up in my head is how much is fucking clown nose getting? Right? How much is red clown nose getting? Red clown nose, no way they're getting more than half a penny. Right? Clown nose is giving out hand jobs for a bite of biscuit and, and only getting that if she looks the other way while she strokes. I feel I feel like a clown nose is a pretty big turnoff. And a bigger turnoff if you know the clown nose is not even covering a real nose, it's covering a syphilis scar. That is fucking rough. That is sad and rough. And don't think about what I'm saying too much because it's be wildly inappropriate. What I'm, I guess all of this is. What the fuck do I, why why am I worried? Catherine's nose being nicked is uh, used as evidence by some who believe the Ripper was an ultra conservative wackadoodle who is punishing the prostitutes for living in sin. One of those pieces of shit. It'll teach you to be poor, not have uh, other viable economic options, and not want to starve to death. How dare you want to scrape a sad shadow of life together in a cold and unforgiving shithole of the world. It'll teach you, it'll teach you. Catherine's body was examined at 2 a.m. It was noted that she must have died within a half hour of being found. No indication of any sexual connection. The mutilation of the body happened after death. At the mortuary it was discovered that a piece of her blood-stained apron was missing. It was quickly discovered by Constable Alfred Long, about a third of a mile away from the crime scene, appeared to have been used to wipe a knife clean before being discarded. There was no way to prove scientifically that the blood, though, was hers, let alone human. They just didn't have a good uh, blood analysis back then. Near the scrape of apron... On Goulson Street, Long also found a message that had been left in chalk that said, the Jews are not the men that will be blamed for nothing. Long assumed that this message had been written recently because no one else had yet touched it, and someone would have erased it quickly had they seen it if they'd been living nearby. Now, now Long, this is a Jewish neighborhood. Long notified the Lehman Street police station, and detectives quickly swarmed the area, searching the flats, and searched the entire neighborhood. They found nothing. During the chaos, a city detective, Daniel Hulse, stood guard over the message. You know, this is evidence. Uh, waiting for the sun to come up enough to provide proper light for a photograph. Unfortunately, the writing was out of city jurisdiction, was on Metropolitan Police ground. Superintendent Arnold of the London Metro Police demanded that the message be erased. He was afraid of inciting anti-Jewish hate and, you know, good reason for that fear. Warren, the Metro Police Commissioner, rushed over, had the message scrubbed out after denying Halse's pleadings to wait and ignoring any suggestions of compromise, such as just temporarily covering it and then get some pictures of it, which would have been the right thing to do. Just cover it up, get some photographs, and then you know you got your evidence, and you know, you have it like incited, you know, fucking panic and pandemonium. Idiotic move to erase it. He destroys important evidence in a major investigation. And you may remember this whole message erasing situation from that Freemason two-parter suck we did not, not that long ago. Uh, some comp- conspiracy theorists have pointed to this message being erased as part of this big, you know, fucking Illuminati, Elders of Zion, uh, you know, uh, the the Royals of London, Freemason Secret Society cover-up, you know, to keep the killer from being caught. Because, you know, the real Jack the Ripper was a Freemason, and the killings were part of this uh, horrific, satanic Freemason power ritual, and also part of getting rid of people who were trying to blackmail the crown for the... You know, the, the the sexual life of one of their one of their own, that all this fucking nonsense, and the devil Jews and the Freemason wizardry, you know, uh, craziness. Uh, who was Catherine Eddowes? Uh Her given name was Kate Kelly, and the local police uh, were familiar with her. She'd actually been in police custody for excessive drunkenness that same night. Uh, she was deemed sober enough to be released at 12.30 a.m., left the local station with what was likely uh, the entirety of her physical possessions in her pockets. Which uh, we now know what those are because of the, the police, you know, having to confiscate them while she was, uh, you know, in in jail. Two small blue bed ticking bags, um, two clay pipes, small tin of sugar, another another of tea, a piece of flannel, six piece six little pieces of soap, small comb, a blunt knife and a spoon, red cigarette case, uh, an empty match case, another piece of red flannel that contained pins and needles, ball of hemp, piece of a piece of an apron piece of a pair of eyeglasses and two handkerchiefs. And that's all she had in the world. It's fucking it's pathetically sad. She was 46 years old at the time of her death, had been married to Mr. Conway in years past. A man named Mr. Conway uh, had three kids with him before being uh, separated due to her excessive drinking. That is definitely the theme with these victims. Uh, prostitutes who tended to uh, like to uh, get very drunk, which I don't blame them. Just trying to drink away their sad lives. Uh, their children. Grew up with her father, uh, had little to do with Catherine, the oldest daughter, Annie, 23 at the time of her mom's murder. Later recounted that Catherine had recently shown up uh, two years prior asking her for money. and Annie refused to give it to her. Also refused to disclose the whereabouts of her father and her younger brothers. Uh, Catherine been living with a man named John Kelly for the past seven years who had been earning income as a hawker. Now, a hawker is defined as a person who travels around selling goods, typically, typically advertising them by shouting. So he yelled at people to buy stuff from him on the street, uh, which – which doesn't sound as terrible as being a uh, East End prostitute in a syphilis-riddled city, but it doesn't sound good either, man, these, these people. Bangers, get your fresh bangers. Three bangers for the two pence. Sex cheese, get your sex cheese. Six pence for the cheese. Three pence to have a go with the lady. Half a pence for the hand job from the from the clown nose lady. Uh, Catherine and John never had much. At one point, they sold their most valuable item, a pair of boots. Oh, fuck. For the money to buy dinner. God dang it. The sadness. The sadness. The immense sadness. You're, you're The best thing you own is a pair of boots and you're selling it for a fucking dinner. <sighs> John knew that uh, she drank too much. Didn't find her to be troublesome. Uh, despite her short disappearances, uh, frequent misuse of limited funds, and the whole sleeping with other dudes who may have simplest for money, they, they got along pretty well uh he heard that she'd been taken to jail to sober up on her last night of lie but but wasn't worried as soon as they would just find each other sunday morning i guess that was just you know just part of the deal part of the relationship the east end was in panic mode after these uh two new killings and the police did what they could to keep the public safe major henry smith ordered that every man and woman found together after midnight was to be stopped and questioned henceforth henceforth question them uh anderson required that all prostitutes found after midnight be warned that they could not be guaranteed protection warren sent every available man under his jurisdiction into the east end And then on August, uh, excuse me, October 1st, 1888, another possibly authentic letter arrives to the Central News Agency, and it reads, I was not caught in the old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucer Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had had not time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till go to work again, Jack the Ripper. And this one, the the authenticity is questioned, because uh, actually by the time this one was written, uh, it was public knowledge that the two people have been killed. So it's not get inside info. But the public, they don't like it. You know, when the press puts this out, they, they, they start to demand that police commissioner, Sir Charles Warren, resign. You know, they think he just he can't find this person. Let's fucking get somebody who can. There have been no breaks in the case. Women are being disemboweled on the street. Uh, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee forms a volunteer-based organization vested in the safety of that community. And they present the queen with a formal request for an offer of reward for capture of the killer. On his own, Colonel Frazier, the city police commissioner, offers a reward of 500 pounds for information leading to the capture of this killer, but still nada, nothing. Now people are pissed. They want someone to blame. Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren gets more of the blame. It's kind of like when a professional sports uh, team has a really bad season. Might not be anyone's fault, actually. You know? Uh, but you know what? Doesn't matter. Someone's getting fucking fired. Uh, heads are going to roll. The police demand answers, and the news provides them uh, a scapegoat in Warren. Uh, the autopsy inquest on Catherine Adow's begins uh, October 4th, 1888, as presided over by Mr. S.F. Langham, city coroner. Dr. Sequeira, uh and Dr. Brown uh, agree that the murder has been committed in five to eight minutes worth of time. And in contrast, Dr. Phillips and his opinions on the killings in Metro uh, jurisdiction, they believe that the killer showed no evidence of anatomical knowledge. A little disagreement there. Dr. Saunders, who had been present at the post-mortem, agreed that such uh, someone such as just a, you know, a butcher uh, or a meat cutter would have sufficient knowledge to commit these crimes. I also uh, agreed that the organs harvested the way they were harvested would be of no professional use. So someone wasn't doing it to uh, get some organs for whatever kind of fucking medical shit they're doing. The most likely uh, letter to have been sent from Jack the Ripper is received by George Lusk, head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, on October sixteenth, 1888. This is the most famous Jack the Ripper letter. It's addressed, uh, the return address is from hell, and it contained part of a kidney, which I gotta say is a hell of a way to send a letter, man. If someone's ignoring your emails, you know, maybe someone's ignoring your DMs, your tweets, your fucking Instagram posts. Send them a letter. Send them a letter, a return address from hell, and throw a little kidney in there. That's gonna that's gonna stand out. You don't get a lot of kidney letters these days. Uh, might also probably will get you some unwanted police attention. But but hey, maybe that's the price you pay to get noticed. Don't do that. Uh, multiple letters supposedly from Jack the Ripper were received by the press and the police at the time. So many letters, but only those mentioned in this timeline, uh, you know, ha- ha- having a chance of being authentic based on Donald Rumbelow's research, which includes writing analysis and research into those who later claim to have authored them for monetary gain and more. Uh, Donald Rumbelow, by the way, he- he's the guy who wrote The Complete Jack the Ripper thorough look into the Jack the Ripper story and a primary source for this episode. Rumbleau is a former police officer for the City of London, crime historian, worked as a curator of the City of London's Crime Museum for some time, and has sat as the chairman of England's Crime Writers Association twice. Uh, He is likely the most qualified and best research author on the subject of Jack the Ripper. And out of all the letters sent in, this is the only one that can't be disproved with any sense of real evidence. Uh, It reads, from hell, Mr. Lask, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved it for you together. It's really, oh, there's like fucking horrible spellings. It's hard to read. Uh, preserved it for you uh, together. Piece I fried and ate it. it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if only you wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. And again, like, so many, like, uh, uh, grammatical spelling errors, they, they didn't know how to fucking put your sentence together. And Dow's body was examined and found uh, found to indeed be missing a kidney. November 9th, 8th and 88, Mary Jane Kelly's body is found. Another victim, less than a quarter mile from where Chapman had been murdered, number 26 Dorset Street. There's a lodging house kept by John McCarthy. A back section of the building had been sectioned off from the rest of the house, had its own separate entrance from Miller's Court, room thirteen. It was in a busy busy section of town, and Miller's court was surrounded by the likes of which you would imagine. Six houses full of transient renters. Two of them were definitely used by local prostitutes, another of which had 300 beds in it that were rented every night. One of those packed places. Kelly had rented rooms 13 since sometime around February or March. Initially, she shared it with her common-law husband, Joseph Barnett, but they split after a huge fight over Kelly uh, wanting to allow another prostitute to room with him. It's cramped quarters, and apparently Joseph was a one-prostitute kind of dude. Uh, 10.45 a.m., Thomas Boyer, the shop assistant, was sent to Kelly's room to ask about her past due rent. It's believed that the house owner, McCarthy, may have been letting her run open uh, a tab to gain control over her and force her into a situation where he could reap benefit from her prostitution. Boyer knocked on the door but got no answer, so he reached through a window broken in Mary's big final blowout fight with Joseph, and he pulled aside the curtain to see an absolutely grotesque sight. Uh, The police were sent for Inspector Beck and Inspector Aberline arrived at the site, sealed off the room, hoping not to damage any evidence. Dr. Phillips followed and asked that everyone wait until Police Commissioner Warren could be reached and bloodhounds, a new idea uh, to be used, could be brought in. Unfortunately, no one knew that Warren had resigned the day prior and no hounds uh, would be coming. One thirty p.m., Superintendent Arnold decides that they could wait for Warren no longer and they enter the room. Kelly's throat had been slashed in the Ripper's familiar manner, nearly decapitating her. Her abdomen had been cut uh, and torn partially open. Both of her breasts had been cut off. Fuck. And her left arm was hanging by nothing but a bit of skin. So really uh, kicked up the violence with this one. Her nose had been removed. The skin had been stripped from her forehead. And her legs, uh, oh, just as her legs had been from the thighs to her feet. My God, man. Her liver and bowels had been removed with parts missing. Oh, Some of this place between her feet, all of the removed skin, breast, and nose had been set on the table, and her own hand had been placed into her stomach. What in the fuck? Uh, a theory at the time held that someone's final sights, if particularly frightening or violent, could be burned into the retina of the eye because Kelly's eyes were still intact. Investigators had them slightly removed from the sockets so that bright lights could be placed behind them, and then photographs were taken of the illuminated pupils. Uh, again, of the, of the pupils, but with uh, attached nerves being, you know, shocked with electricity. Took more photos that way. Lastly, took more pictures with no illumination, but the nerves still being shocked with some electrical charge. And uh, and sadly, as I read this, I'm just thinking about, like, if they had these photographs, these photographs exist somewhere. Some fucking <laughs> dark son of a bitch, some weird dark crime collector would pay so much money for those photographs, I am guessing. Uh, of course, this yields no results because it's fucking crazy. What a crazy, what else should they try? Uh, Take your brains out. Take your brains out. So carefully take your brain out and push a little bit of her brain into your ear. If you get a little of her brain in there and mix it with yours, the two brains can talk to each other. You find out what she was thinking in the final moments. Apparently there was an Australian working that uh, case as well. There were no signs of struggle. No weapon was left. In the fireplace, there were remnants of women's clothing that had been burned, presumably for, for light. But there were no, uh, you know, there were not Kelly's garments. Mr. Mrs. Cox, a witness and fellow Miller's Court prostitute, witness Kelly entered the court uh, with a short, poorly dressed man around 11.45 p.m. Kelly was reportedly very intoxicated. Cox said goodbye to Kelly, heard Kelly singing at 1 a.m., at 3 a.m. when Cox came in uh, for the last time, Kelly was quiet and the light was out in room 13. Mrs. Prater and Sarah Lewis had heard a cry for help but hadn't thought much of it as it was a solitary cry and not an unheard sound, uh, an unheard of sound, excuse me. Uh Lewis also claimed to have seen a man outside Room 13 in the early morning hours. Uh the inquest the following Monday uh, lasted less than half a day, uh to the frustration of virtually everybody, I guess. Coroner only took the preliminary part of Dr. Phillips' evidence, announced that the rest would be heard at a later date, meaning that limited limited evidence was provided at that time to the public. Uh it was ruled that she died due to willful murder by some person or persons unknown. Uh another witness, George Hutchinson, came forward with an account dealing of uh dealing excuse me, detailing an interaction. He had had with Kelly, a friend of his, uh, the evening of her murder. He went on to describe a strange man that he saw with her. Uh, The man appeared to be of comfortable status, well-dressed, held a package of some sort under his arm. Hutchinson claimed that he appeared to be Jewish. Uh, He saw them talk in Miller's court and kiss. Uh, Who was Mary Jane Kelly? Well, she's thought to be the last of the Ripper's victims. Uh, She was born in Limerick, Ireland, moved to Wales with her family as a young girl, moved to London in 1884, was rumored to have lived in a, a gay house, Uh, which was uh, a term for a high-end brothel in the West End. She was also rumored to have lived with a gentleman in France for some time before returning to London. Uh, Folks had kind things to say about her. She was mostly quiet, pleasant, and kind. She was 25 when she died, and the brutal business she engaged in hadn't yet claimed her youthful uh, beauty. But the life was wearing her down. Near the end, she began to drink and indulge much more, even take on the nickname of Dark Mary, uh, given to her because she became loud and mean when she was drunk. Police commissioner Warren's official announcement of resignation is made to the sound of cheers in the House of Commons on November 12th, 1888. He submits a document that serves as his confession of failure in the investigation. And then slowly and surely life in the East End goes back to normal as normal as life could be there uh, at that time. No more ripper murders, just the just the normal extreme poverty, filth, exploitation and, uh, you know, rampant syphilis. Uh, Jack the Ripper is thought to have never struck again by most people, and that, of course, takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back barely. All right. So, so now we know about the crimes, but big question: uh, Who the hell did it? Well, obviously, we don't know for sure, or this wouldn't be a historical mystery. But there are suspects, and we're gonna look at them in just a bit. But first, there are other possible victims, and uh, and and I want to give an explanation actually before we even get to them as to why it was so hard to catch someone in 1888. Well, not only could you not analyze blood if you found like you know the that that bloody scrap of clothing that they found after the one murder, you, you know, you couldn't even discern the difference between animal and human blood until 1901. So it was very hard to use, you know, certain blood-soaked pieces of things as evidence. Uh, Fingerprinting was not uh, a proven or usable method at all yet. The first criminal identification based on fingerprints would happen in 1892, a few years too late in Argentina. Uh, There were no police radios, telephones, et cetera. So quick communication, not possible. I mean, and yes, telephones had been invented at this point, but they were, you know, in the beta testing phase basically still. The first long-distance call of about six miles uh, had happened you know just a uh, little over a decade prior in 1876 and, and, and telephones were extraordinarily rare and the police they, they didn't have them so that alone uh, would make detective work extremely difficult uh local knowledge witness accounts logic expert opinions hoping to catch a criminal in the act were the primary means of catching a criminal at that time and mostly just catching them red-handed was the way you, you almost had to do it you know <laughs> like short of catching someone literally red-handed these cases were extremely difficult to definitively solve. And now before we, um, you know, get to the uh, other possible suspects, let's talk about some of those other possible victims I mentioned. Uh, victims, some historians, some armchair investigators have chalked up to the Ripper, but the general consensus on these next ones is highly doubtful that uh, whoever killed these women we spoke of earlier also committed these murders, but they come up often enough that it felt uh, worthy of including them in today. suck. Uh, Emma Elizabeth Smith was another East End prostitute who was murdered a few months before Polly in 1888 within a few hundred yards of that same location. Uh, she had survived long enough to walk nearly a mile to London hospital, uh, before succumbing to her injuries the next day. Oh man, this is the most brutal part of this episode. Uh, she claimed to have been attacked by four men, wasn't sure how to identify them. And now Jesus brace yourself for this next detail. If you're eating, don't take a bite right now. If you're drinking, uh, might want to gulp it down before proceeding, Uh, Her face has been beaten and bloodied, but her internal injuries are what killed her, and this is fucking horrific. A blunt object had been rammed into her vagina with enough force that it broke through the wall separating her vagina from her rectum. Broke through the membrane. Uh, Jesus, why does someone fucking do that to anyone? My God. I hope that those four motherfuckers who did this if it was those guys which it sounds like it was died of the worst four cases of syphilis that the world has ever seen i hope that their noses and that their dirty dicks just rotted off of them fucking animals uh and again while this crime was extraordinarily violent and the victim was a prostitute in the same location there's just too many differences between it and the others to confidently attribute it to jack the ripper why would he be working with you know other people for that for that one but i guess you know since they never saw someone for the other ones i mean there's just a, a theory that it could have been a group of people for each of the crimes Uh, Working girl Martha Tabram was found murdered on August 7th, 1888, a little over three weeks before the first victim thought to have been definitively killed by Jack the Ripper. She had been the uh, victim of 39 stab wounds. Thirty-nine! Despite people being awake and nearby at the time of the crime, three of which were police officers patrolling nearby, not a single scream was heard. All evidence pointed to the fact that she had been uh, killed where she was found. People began to cry foul after these murders, claiming that if either woman had been a woman of good standing, that rewards would have been offered for the capture of their attackers. Now, the hysteria from East Enders and anger towards police uh, that we talked about earlier makes even more sense when you take into account these other two killings that happened before the rest of the Ripper killings, because it's not like the East End was free from gruesome violence and murder before the Ripper killings. You know, uh, he or they or whatever, uh, you know, just took an unacceptable level of already existing violence and took it even further. And so, you know, there have been other things building towards group and public hysteria before the murders we talked about earlier. Uh, and then there's the murder of Frances Coles in 1891, uh, who also worked as a prostitute. And some think she was the final ripper victim. She was found in the East End. And this is a couple years later, obviously, uh, with her throat having been cut three times, having been cut in movements from both directions, according to Dr. Phillips, uh, and also similar to other ripper victims. She had been disemboweled. However, the weapon had been uh, a blunt knife as opposed to the sharp instrument used by the Ripper in the early killings. Also, a man named James Thomas Sadler was quickly arrested and blamed for the crime, and his arrest leads us into a look at the suspects, other suspects of Jack the Ripper. Uh, there have been hundreds of suspects over the years, some reasonable, some some not, many not. Here's a short list that contains a mix of both, and there are a lot out there. I mean, it could be a two-hour uh, long episode, easy, on, on just brief overviews of all the suspects. Uh, Sadler was discharged from, the, from a ship on which he was working as a fireman, the SS Fez, at 7 p.m. on February 11th, 1891. He went and he had a drink, found lodgings, ran into Frances Coles at the Princess Alice. He had known her for over a year already at this time. They they left together, continued to drink, spend the night together. Sadler brought Frances a new hat that she had asked for the following afternoon. They drank in a pub while waiting for it to be altered a bit to fit Coles. Uh, they continued to drink, and Cole eventually picked up the hat, pinning it to her dress as the day wore on. Sadler was mugged by a woman and beaten by men. It's believed that Cole may have even orchestrated this. His money and watch now gone. He and Cole flee to a lodging house. They erupt into a loud argument at this point. Several witnesses doing this, uh, which would lead to his later arrest. He tries to reboard the ship. Another altercation ensues. He's attacked by a fellow seaman. He eventually made it to a hospital for the night. Man, a lot lot of fucking attacks. He getting attacked left and right. After leaving the dock and being turned away from the lodging houses for lack of coin, Francis Cole seen by him during this kind of whole tumultuous process, and then she's murdered. So a lot of weird stuff going on, a lot of attacks, and then she's killed. February 15th, he's arrested and charged with Cole's murder. Luckily for Sadler, he had had legal representation through the Siemens Union, and all the charges against him were dropped due to his alibis and due to witness accounts uh, backing up his stories. The police kept an eye on him, though, still suspecting but never proving their case. And On December 10th, 1891, his wife Sarah would accuse him of abuse, cruelty, and threatening to take her life her threats, though, quickly uh, investigated, and and she does not pursue charges. So you know, a lot of uh, a lot of charges around him, a lot of weird shit around him. That murder uh, definitely, a dude, seemed like a piece of shit. Uh, maybe maybe not a murderer. Another name that's been thrown into the hat of possible Jackson River murders, and I think the thought with him is that if he did that one, maybe he maybe he would have done the other ones. Another name that's been thrown into the hat of possible Jackson River murders is the German-born and British-raised modernist painter Walter Sickert. Uh, highly unlikely that he was, uh, Jack the Ripper, but, uh, you know, is commonly mentioned, uh, and hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. Sickert, uh, I'm guessing watch is going to be like, it's actually a uh, psychart. uh, aside from having a large influence on avant-garde art, Sickert, uh, was, uh, often is still considered a suspect despite being from a comfortable life. He was fascinated with urban poor life and he moved to working class areas in London in his early life. His first major work was developed in the late 1880s around the time of the murders and it quickly led to controversy. He painted dark images, painted prostitutes, had a fascination with Jack the Ripper. Also, doesn't help that he initially wanted to be an actor, and his life of eccentricities included dressing in costume in daily life. And one of the costumes he liked to wear was a costume modeled after what Jack the Ripper was supposed to look like. However, at the time, he was not a suspect, just a weird dude. Crime novelist Patricia Cornwell uh, published Portrait of a Killer. Jack the Ripper case closed in 2002, and she adamantly claimed that he was the guy. She claimed that his penile fistula. Uh, fistula, uh, fistula, essentially an extra hole in his penis shaft. It's uh, usually like a birth defect, you know, and then like you get like a hole it can be like a hole kind of just going through your penis, not along like your urethra, but actually like going through it. I guess maybe horizontally is the best way to describe it. Uh, you can have multiple surgeries to try and close just a thing that can, that can, ha- that can happen. She says that this left him emotionally and physically scarred being born with this, having a lot of surgeries as a kid led to a uh, deep, uh, deeply troubling tendencies that have, that evolved into murder. But his claim doesn't really make a lot of sense, given that he went on to become extremely sexually active, married three times, etc. His, his, his fascia, uh didn't seem to have hindered his romantic life. She also uh, offered up DNA-based links as proof, but but none of the actual DNA she kind of offered came from Sickert, so that's a loss. Uh it sounds like she was really trying to force a nar- narrative. Cornwell received a great deal of backlash for taking her theory too far, for not having solid evidence, and for destroying, supposedly, an actual uh, original work by Sickert to... Do some more investigating. Also, there's a there's a, a very good chance that Sickard wasn't actually even in London at the exact time of the murders. There was a chance that he was in France. Author Lewis Carroll is actually a Jack the Ripper suspect. Yeah, yeah, the author of uh, Alice in Wonderland. His real name was Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, and he was uh, taught at Christchurch until 1881, which was located near the crime scenes in the East End. Richard Wallace would later come in his 1996 book, Jack the Ripper, Lighthearted, light-hearted Friend, that Carroll was the Ripper. And that he worked in conjunction with a colleague. And he based this theory off the idea that Carroll was already a, a man of questionable morals. He, that he had pedophilia tendencies that have often uh, been brought up regarding him. Uh, I looked into those, and there's some weird shit there I didn't know about. He, uh, he set up a photography studio in one of his homes in Oxford for a while, where he'd been a mathematics lecturer. And uh, he took self-portraits and portraits of famous artists of the era, you know, like uh, Dante, Gabrielle Rossetti. Uh, but he also took a lot of pictures of kids and actually mostly took pictures of kids and, and some of them very troubling. Uh, there was one that unnerved, uh, some BBC, uh, you know, Carol experts, particularly, um, there was this girl, Lorena, that was the elder sister of Alice Liddell, the little girl who would inspire the famous Alice character in uh, Alice in Wonderland. And Carol befriended the L- Liddell family and became infatuated with the couple's daughters, Lorena, Edith, and especially Alice when they're all kids in this BBC documentary about him, this uh, literature professor, Hugh Houghton, says that Carol's relationship with the Liddell girls was known to have a, uh, quote, huge intensity, which would seem, quote, pretty strange now. And then he says, my understanding that he, that is that he was in love with Alice, but he was so repressed that he would never have transgressed any boundaries, says Vanessa Tate, great-granddaughter of Alice in the documentary. She adds that the explicit photograph uh may explain uh found in this documentary may exp- explain the rift that made carol break contact with her family in 1863 when alice was 11 and fucking there's some creepy ass pictures there's one of like him it's like he's getting ready to kiss one of the girls like they're holding each other in this very sexual way like open mouth like just fucking weird uh and i looked at other pictures i mean they're very troubling like 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 troubling enough that that i i think that i would physically assault a man if I found out he took pictures like that, not think, I, I hope I would. If uh, a dude like that, you know, took pictures with my daughter. So, you know, may not be Jack the Ripper, probably not. It's a lot of, a lot of stretches in this, uh, trying to link him to these crimes, but definitely a fucking dirt bag. Uh, and, and another, you know, piece of like quote unquote evidence that supposedly linked him to being Jack the Ripper was these anagrams found within his text. Now an anagram is a, is a word or phrase formed by rearranging the letters of a different word or phrase. Typically, you know, using all of the original letters exactly one time in the new phrase, for example, or, or word like it, like the word anagram can be rearranged into uh, nagaram. And so here's an example of this with, with this guy. Uh, he wrote the actual uh, author, Lewis Carroll. Uh, he wrote the following. Um, so she wandered away through the wood, carrying the ugly little thing with her. And a great job it was to keep hold of it. It also wriggled about so. But at last she found out that the proper way was to keep tight hold of itself, foot, and its right ear. Now, this is from Carol's nursery, Alice. And that can be rearranged in an anagram method into, She wriggled about so, but at last Dodgson and Bane found a way to keep hold of the fat little whore. I got tight hold of her and slit her throat, left ear to right. It was tough, wet, disgusting, too. So weary of it, they threw up Jack the Ripper. Well as creepy as Lewis may have been, this is this is crazy. Uh, and for the, for the reason, the obvious reason that in a large amount of text you can you can rearrange almost any large amount of text to make it look like a ripper confession. Uh, many people also thought the killer must have been a Jewish kosher butcher because of their skill in cutting the whole leather apron, the, the skill you know the, the, some knowledge of anatomy like you know how they had to cut throats of animals, how they had to use and access exceptionally sharp blades as required by Jewish practice and Talmudic law. You know, witnesses reference, uh, you know, witness references to suspects and sightings, and, and just kind of general, general, excuse me, anti-Semitism. So maybe, or maybe not. You know, if it was a Jewish but- butcher, no one has any idea which of the many, many Jewish butchers working in the East End it may have been. And then there's Doctor Francis J. Uh, Tumblety, a letter from Chief Inspector J. G. Littlechild, who is involved in investigation at the time of the killings, to George R. Sims, a writer of the Victorian ballad, "It Was Christmas Day in the Workhouse." found its way many years later into the hands of historical collector Stuart Evans, and it names Tumblety as the primary suspect. Born in Ireland in 1833, Tumblety grew uh, to be a woman-hating con artist at best and Jack the Ripper at worst. He moved with his family to Rochester, New York when he was young, and this may explain the the use of Americanisms, uh, the sayings and the letters received from the Ripper, such as boss, some American slang at the time. Uh, he claimed to be a doctor after having disappeared from his family for about 10 years, went on the, went on the road selling quack cures like the— Tumblety pimple destroyer, uh, raked in enough money to make a living. Uh, At one point, he was incarcerated for three weeks as a suspect, uh, suspected accomplice to President Lincoln's assassination. Also, while in the D.C. area, his disdain for women became apparent, explaining that his attitude came from personal experience and had been married to someone who continued to work as a prostitute. He told a predominantly male military audience once at a speech that uh, cattle, his term for women and prostitutes, were of no good use and then showered his dinner guests a large display or showed, excuse me, showed his dinner dinner guests the largest play that contained cases of anatomical specimens, over half of which were uteri from every class of woman. He spoke of them in very uh, uh, inflammatory terms. He went to England in the 1860s for the first time where the Scotland Yard created a file on him. They were worried about him and noted in in his file his extreme um, misogynistic attitude towards women. And if you're getting noticed for that in the 1860s, you really got to fucking hate women. Because, you know, uh, it's not like women were, you know, uh, highly appreciated back in history. In June of 1888, he was, he was visiting England again. And chose to stay at the East End instead of his usual hotels. All right, around the you know time of the uh, of the killings, a little earlier than that, he stayed at 22 Batty Street, off Commercial Road, right next to Burner Street, where the, where Stride was murdered. The landlady of the building heard her American lodger come in on September 30th, the morning after the double murder. He later asked her to clean a shirt for him, and it was wet with blood in the cuffs. So that that doesn't look good. She reported him to police, but he but then he had left and he never returned to the building. They couldn't find him. October of 1888, the Scotland Yard asked San Francisco police for writing samples from Tumblety. They agreed to do so. The Yard repeated the request November 22nd with urgency, as Tumblety had been arrested for gross indecency on November 7th. He was actually arrested for getting caught engaging in a homosexual act, which was illegal. He posted bail, fled to France. Bought a ticket on a boat to the U.S. under a false name. The New York Times published an article claiming he was suspected of the Whitechapel murders. Claimed he'd been arrested on a lesser offense in England as they waited to gather more evidence for the murders. Back in New York, Tumblety was supposedly closely uh, surveilled by police, but London police apparently didn't know that uh, because Little Child's letter claims that he was never heard from again after leaving France. In reality, he moved somewhere quiet and wrote and distributed Dr. Francis Tumblety's sketch of the life of the gifted, eccentric, and world-famed physician in which he lashed out at the media for its slander against him. And, uh, yeah, they just weren't able to apprehend him. I feel like from what little info I've come across this guy, out of all the suspects, he seems the most likely to me. Uh, him and H.H. H. Holmes, we'll talk about in a second. H.H. H. Holmes is a little more fantastical, but interesting. This guy seems practically the most likely. I feel like if there was a modern investigation, uh, he'd be, you know, primary suspect, uh, they do some definite DNA testing, and try and match him with the DNA from the victims. And then there were, you know, other less likely but popular theories, you know, like secret society cover-ups, like the Freemason cover-up we touched on earlier, other wild possibilities. Supposedly some people were trying to extort the royal family over some bisexual fooling around that Prince Albert was up to, and that they uh, then sent their Freemason doctor, Sir William Gold to silence him. We, we touched on that in the Freemason two-parter. There's that Jack the Ripper connection to H.H. Uh, H. H. Holmes I've mentioned, the man known for the murder castle in Chicago was discussed as a possible Ripper suspect in the History Channel's eight-part series, American Ripper. And you guys know how I feel about the History Channel. It's not the great investigative journalism that goes on there. But uh, but this is interesting. Jeff Mudgett, Holmes' great-great-grandson and an established lawyer, uh, claimed that he was indeed Jack the Ripper and that the person hung as Holmes was actually another man. Now He based these arguments on diary entries uh, he had inherited from uh, his uh, murderous ancestor. The similarities drawn between the mutilations, clear desire for ritualized and gruesome killings, Although the methods do vary you know between H.H. Uh, H. H. Holmes in Chicago and the, and the Jack the Ripper in, in uh, London. And anatomical knowledge do give his theory a little bit of credence. Pair all of that with the timeline of events, the rumors that the Scotland Yard was investigated in American and, and similar handwriting samples, and it's an interesting theory. However, uh, it was found that H.H. H. Holmes was indeed executed uh, in, in Pennsylvania when DNA tests were eventually done at the gravesite. So Mudgett was wrong about that. Uh, however, H.H. Holmes does have a connection to Whitechapel, uh, Jack the Ripper's hunting ground. His friend and partner in crime from his early days uh, at the University of Michigan, when he, Edmund Buckley, uh, came from a wealthy Whitechapel family. Now, Buckley and Holmes, they would run these insurance scams I talked about in the H.H. Holmes suck, you know, selling corpses to medical facilities. And according to uh, um, census records, Holmes has a, had a residence in Whitechapel. After he tried to sell a corpse to a local hospital, a formal complaint was filed against him. The records placed him in the Whitechapel area around the time of the Ripper murders. Now, what's he doing more than just his usual corpse peddling? Probably a long shot, but it's an interesting possibility that it could have been Holmes. Incredible that with all the uh, atrocities the world has witnessed, this one does still hold interest. You know, that we're still talking about this. Uh, The Johnny Depp film, From Hell, dissects the Freemason Jack the Ripper angle a bit. Over a thousand books have been printed about Jack the Ripper. There are extensive websites dedicated to the possibilities around his crimes uh, there have even been numerous magazines devoted only to Jack the Ripper, such as Ripperana, which ran for from 1992 to 2000. Wow, man. So what have we learned today overall? Well, for me, I learned that uh, learning about the crimes of Jack the Ripper was a really good excuse to learn about something I found in the end to be more interesting. What life was like for too many East Enders in late 19th century London. Holy shit, man. The filth, the death in human living conditions, the rampant prostitution, the venereal disease, the violence. Think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who lived the bleakest of lives in just that one city and just that one small portion of history. Makes me think about how good I have it, right? You know, how good I've had it on my rides around the sun. And yes, we do live our lives revolving around the sun, flat earthers. Uh, Shit, man, even when I was at my poorest, I still never worried about actually uh, not having a bed to sleep in. I never worried about being tossed out on the street where I'd have to sell my body just to barely survive. Never fought anybody over fucking soap you know with all those deaths there were so many orphans so many so many of the women who, who could have been preyed on by jack had no one in the world who cared about them no one at all if you have if you have even one person who cares about you you're lucky in comparison right and even if you don't you're still lucky if you're even able to listen to this podcast cuz you're alive you're not fighting over soap you haven't been brutally murdered more than the victims of the ripper ended up being able to claim So so I guess uh, I say use the darkness we just explored in this podcast to remind you of how much light there may be in your life. You may have it bad, but I doubt you're getting, you know, uh, fucked for less than what it costs to buy a pound of cheese. And with that, let's uh, let's head over to uh, top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Life in the Whitechapel area of the East End and life in the East End of London in general was really terrible in 1888. Syphilis rampant and incurable. Dudes standing in lines hoping they were lucky enough to get picked to take baths together. Prostitutes not getting paid enough to buy cheese. Sometimes their noses are rotten off. Number 2. There is an actual chance that H.H. Holmes that murderous Chicago maniac was also Jack the Ripper, which is darkly fascinating to me. And uh, and is that why the murder suddenly stopped? You know, because H.H. Holmes had to head back to America. Violent serial killers don't generally commit those types of murders then and then just stop, you know, and start living a normal life. Number three, be nice to Jewish people. Holy fuck have they had it rough throughout history. Anti-Semitism and European history seem to be virtually inseparable. Number four, horses were kicking out 1,000 tons of horse shit a day on the streets of London. 1,000 tons. So maybe having potholes on your street really isn't that big of a deal after all. Number five, new info, the case was just solved this morning. According to my sources, Jeff the Ripper was none other than the 22nd and 24th president of the United States, Grover Cleveland. Think about it. He had a Ripper-esque mustache. His name is Grover. He doesn't look overly friendly when you see pictures of him. So that's something. No, of course not. That there was uh, There's been no We Found Him update. That would just kind of kill the entire episode, actually. If you want real new info, though, highly suggest checking out Jack the Ripper and it's jack-the-ripper.org. Man, it is a very well-maintained and comprehensive website uh dedicated only to Jack the Ripper. It's just a one-stop shop for all things Ripper. Seriously, if you want to learn more about Jack, man, uh you could you could spend weeks on that website. Link in the episode description. Time suck top 5 takeaways. Jack the Ripper has been filed in the bin sucked folder. It's been put in the Bojangle suck file cabinet. Was he H.H. Holmes? Why is that so darkly interesting to me? Maybe. Uh, new stand up comedy album, maybe on the problem, still out now. Still able to be scooped up and downloaded on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. If you're a stand up fan, treat yourself to a hot crowd in Portland, Oregon, enjoying uh, my stand up Uh, Thanks for all the recent iTunes reviews, man. They've been pouring in recently. Thanks for the uh, reviews on the album at uh, various places on Google and Amazon and iTunes and maybe, and also just uh, on, on, on Time Suck in various places. Really appreciate it. It's been, uh, Really helps keep it on the charts. Helps other people find it. And uh, thanks to Harmony Vella Camp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell, our our newest member, Alex. Alex is uh Alex Dugan, right? He's he's on the fucking team now. I gotta start writing him in the uh, in the in the thanks section. So glad to have him on board. Uh, so glad to have the team. So glad to have my sister Donna Hale on board helping to research not only this episode but also Monday's episode. So surprised by her research, again, by the way. She does a great job, and I I didn't think she would because as a kid, she was always pretty dumb. She was always, uh, I would say, very dumb. She always, uh, the family, we would talk about her just being worried about her lack of any definable talent, and she smelled weird, and she was a bad person, and she looked funny. And I'm kidding, of course. I love my sister, and she's great. She's always been great. Fun to be able to collaborate with her. Uh, This Monday, we are working uh, with her again. She helped on the research uh, on, on a UFO episode. We're moving back in a UFO direction. It's about damn time. It's been way too long. We're sucking on the men in black, the real ones, not the Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones movies, which are fun. No, we're sucking on the on, on the possibly real-life inspiration for those films. Men in UFO lore, the men in black are men dressed in black suits who claim to be government agents who show up at the scene uh, of a UFO sighting, show up to visit those who claimed uh, to have uh, you know had a sighting. You know, they, they apparently threaten and harass witnesses to keep them quiet. Some think they work for the government. Some think they work for this kind of one-world government organization. Some think they're aliens themselves. Have they been harassing, citing witnesses since at least 1947? We're going to find out. It's just a good excuse to look into UFO stuff in general. Perfect timing, too. Uh, I took an Uber from the Sacramento airport to my hotel yesterday, and the driver and I got to talking, told him about this podcast. And I guess he felt like I was the kind of person you could trust with this info. He didn't seem like a wackadoodle. And he tells me about uh, how he and a high school buddy saw a UFO back in Hutchinson, Kansas, just outside of Hutchinson in the early 80s when he was in his early 20s. You know, he grew up working on farms. He said he wasn't drunk when it happened because I asked. He said he and a buddy had been uh, doing farm work uh, all day long. It's a hot summer day. At the end of the day, you know, they, uh, they went to go get showered up and then head out to a local bar and have a few drinks. They're getting ready to, you know, hit the bar not long after the sun goes down. And then suddenly his friend, you know, as he's getting dressed, tells him to run outside. His friend, uh, and he, uh, they, they, they hop in the car, they head down to the end of the driveway and he doesn't know what's going on. And his friend just like, you got to see this, you got to see this. And then he shows him over the, uh, make it to the end of the driveway. I guess it was like a crest of a or kind of small hill. They look and all of a sudden he said there was this huge, dark, looked like it was two story tall, completely silent, giant black triangular aircraft, some kind of spacecraft hovering in the sky above them. He said it was enormous, like football field sized. And then it had a few lights and then it seemed to be watching them a bit, and then it just silently floated away, not making a single sound out over some farmland and just disappeared into the night. So who knows? Maybe he was bullshit. Maybe maybe it's nonsense. But what if that shit is true? And what if the men in black are true as well? Let's suck into it. And now let's find out what you suckers have been drawn into this past week with today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay, just a few updates today, because the suck was long. It's a long one, I was barely able to get it done with my traveling in time for today's release. Uh, But some good ones, some good ones. Uh, First up, funny story about Time Sucker Casey Jones. uh, Listening to the Green River Killer Suck this past Monday, Suck with his mom. uh, To introduce her to the show, (laughs) I'm not sure that was the best episode to do that, but I love it. Uh, uh, Casey writes, uh, Dear Lord and Master, Dr. Reverend Mr. Cummins Esquire, you were asking how many people you get uh, with uh, the jokes uh throughout the podcast well, with the green River killer you did, I was taking my mother across town and threw on the latest time suck and when you said you would ki- <laughs> And when you said you had killed someone, the look of horror on my mother's face was amazing and almost made me veer off the road. After a few extra is he serious questions uh from my mom you got you got to the Chikatila Rastin Academy spot. And, and when uh, uh, I was asked or when you asked how – no, when I was asked by my mom, how did they get previous year's campers' faces, I lost it. I could not contain my joy anymore and had to explain the inside jokes. She didn't get it. But alas, last said you were funny, even if she didn't understand everything. Thank you, Casey Jones. So I guess it was a good episode. know it's your mom too, but that fucking cracks me up. Cause I can just imagine like uh, my mom, like if, like if I wasn't doing this podcast, but it was the same exact podcast and I was show- showing it to my mom and she listened to those parts. I can only imagine the looks. She'd be like, what in the fuck are you listening to? What are you talking about? So that made me laugh so hard. Thank you. Uh, and next up, uh, another funny one, a little, uh, little fake virtue signaling. I'm so obsessed with that right now. Uh, got trolled. Harmony was just talking about being obsessed with that as well. Harmony Velocamp got trolled the other day from time sucker, uh, uh, Chad Ingram. And I love it. Chad wrote in saying the green river killer was a bad man. Like really, really bad serial killer bad. And that is really bad. And I don't like that because it's bad killing people and stuff. So bad. Just sending this because I knew it would annoy you. You're welcome. Keep on sucking and filling our brains with knowledge. <laughs> Thank you, chat. Uh, that cracks me up. Finally, super cool update uh, from Time Sucker and Space Lizard, Adam Thoreau, who sent a letter, uh, a really touching letter, into the Suck Dungeon last week uh, and some other stuff. P.O. Box 3891, Coeur Idaho, 838 Idaho, uh, 83816. i got to put that in the episode description, make it a little note to do that right as I talk. He sent some stress balls and some beer koozies, uh for a charity that Time Suck inspired him to create. So really I feel like we all inspired him to create by having this you know, be a thing. So so you know, you all have a part in this. Uh, he, he created goodpeopledoinggood.org. I'm putting the link in today's episode description. And, uh, and he wrote a handwritten letter, and he spoke at TimeSuck, helping him overcome some depression he was dealing with. You know, Help him, Nimrod. You help him too, Lucifina, when he gets down. Uh, and he said he doesn't know how a podcast can change a person, but it can. Your passion bleeds through all that you do, and it's inspiring. And he wrote a bunch of other stuff that made me tear up. And, uh, and here is Adam's organization's mission statement. He said, uh, we are officially a recognized nonprofit business. Thanks to all for your support, help, and trust. If we can make someone's day a little brighter, we can make the world a little better. Our goal is to help our neighbors in need and make a stranger's day. It really is the little things. And one small act at a time, that will make a difference. Whether sending a hospital care package, assisting low-income education, helping neighbors in need of utility assistance, buying a veteran's meal, or so much more, we just want to help and make someone's day. If you know someone that would benefit from our services, please contact us at goodpeopledoinggoodorg at gmail.com. Goodpeopledoinggoodorg at gmail.com. We're all human. We must unite to spread joy and moments of happiness to those in need of a smile to remind them them that they are loved. Please consider donating to Good People Doing Good and possibly becoming a monthly patron for as low as a dollar a month. You can become a monthly patron, Patreon, or a one-time donor through PayPal. We will follow up with every donor with updates on how their donation helped. Thank you very much for your time and support. Please check back so- soon for updates. Stay good. Do good. You are fucking good, Adam. You are good, man. You're doing good. And you are also a good time sucker. So grateful to be part of our, of your lives each week and to be uh, you know doing some good in the world uh, that we are reminded so often in of these sucks that can be so fucking cold and brutally unforgiving. You're a bunch of beautiful meat sacks, and I love the shit out of you time suckers i needed that we all did all right have a great weekend men in black coming up right around the corner don't get syphilis don't get syphilis the next few days and if you do get it treated before you end up where you know before you end up wearing a clown nose and doling out hand jobs for biscuit bites and keep on sucking Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible.